and welcome to the Eye of Faces. Welcome, yes that's right, to part 17 of 17 of Storm of Swords. It's finale day, cue the celebration music. Woohoo, yeah, we're here, we've made it, well done everybody. Yes, after 17 long, long, big filled up episodes after I don't know how many months, we have reached the end of Storm of Swords, so... I mean, hello, hello, welcome to the other faces, my fellow green folk, well done for getting this far. Today is going to be, obviously, a huge episode, the episode of all episodes, for this is the end of all ends. I'm sure you will agree, this is where it really gets good, there's not much beating the Ender Storm Swords. Before we get there, I'll try and contain myself just for a few seconds, before we get there, I'm speaking to you from a scorching England, it's lovely outside, so you can probably see why my energy is up a bit, I am solar powered, I've said before. Great timing to get that in sync with our ending here and for this big old episode we've got for you today. Yes, beautiful, warm, sunny England. I, I'm liking that. And we have just a few quick things to go through before we start breaking down all these wonderful chapters. I want to start, as always, with a big thank you to all you essential workers and key workers and whatever you want to call yourselves out there. Whatever particular area you might be working in, you have our utmost gratitude and love forever. And to all the rest of you, still you still have our love and gratitude for listening, for downloading and just for keeping going. It's a tough old time and like I say each week, we're getting through it together so hopefully this podcast can provide some of that. And if there's one that's going to distract you, it's this one because it's just full of stuff. Specifically, I would also like to thank our wonderful patrons and I'd like to highlight Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes and Jennifer also. More new patrons this week. Always glad to have you aboard. Hopefully we'll have some more after the patron-only episode. That's coming soon. Thankfully, finishing Storm of Swords is going to give a little bit of space to record more of that. That'll be with you soon. Also have uh, maybe another patron-only or bonus-type episode kind of formulating in my mind. Only this morning, so I probably shouldn't say too much about that in case I decide not to do it. But you might be getting more, so there's always stuff on the aisle. Do not worry about that. And don't forget, last thing before we get going here, extra episode this week. Sporkle Spectacular returned. Yes, Clash of Kings, closing sentences. With not one, but two very special guests, Zach and Nate, of the Brotherhood Without Manners podcast. You might have had a chance to listen to it already. If not, please do go and have a look. And then either before or after that, I don't mind which, check out the guys, check out Brotherhood Without Manners. It was a lot of fun recording. I think you'll be able to tell. There's quite a lot of laughter in there. Quite a heated match between the guys as well. And as always, we'd love to hear your score. So please do send in, whether privately or publicly. We don't mind. We don't have to share if you don't want. We just love hearing from you, seeing some interaction. It's good to keep our community going. I'm sure you'll agree. So yes, check out Sporkle Spectacular, Clash of Kings, Closing Sentences. And obviously the next one will be on this book. So be uh, listen to a few of these chapters be recognised as well. But that's for later. For now, Sporkle Spectacular with Brotherhood About Man. Let's go and have a look. Okay. Okay, let's, let's talk about our task today, because it's a big one. We're doing the final five chapters of A Storm of Swords. It, it's strange that we're here. It's been a long old journey. This is a big old book, and there's a lot to get through. I think you might remember that we've had a fair few big events, not just in the last couple of weeks, which you could also term the ending, but through the whole book. So how do we try and wrap that up? How do we try and talk about it in one big chunk? It's pretty impossible. Well, we can save the majority of that for the end, I think, when we're doing kind of a big roundup of things but suffice to say it's an amazing book i don't think well you've been with us i think you know we've been right through it we've been through the events and the layers and the little notes and everything else and well i sure enjoyed it i think you probably have as well this is one of the best books for many people it is their favorite book i think i might have to say that personally it is amazing and i mean what can i say really what am i going to say about this thing we've all been through that's not been said before but all of it's true. It is amazing. Storm Swords is, I think it's like the most critically acclaimed, and I can see why. 
and well, like I say, we'll save all the the roundup and where everyone what everyone's been through overall, and like the capping of arcs when we get to the end. For now, I think probably the best option is just to get down to it, shall we? Let's let's wade into this amazing ending and see what we are going to find. Let's begin with our first chapter. Is Tyrion eleven? And honestly, where to even start with a chapter? so huge as this. It's, it's the same problem as talking about it as a whole chunk. I don't think it's any stretch to say that this is one of the top five or so most important single moments in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. It feels like I'm going to say that a lot today, but I specifically mean about this chapter. And that's even if we're just looking at the larger scale of the man who has ruled the continent on and off for 20 years and is currently holding the crown together, dying suddenly. If we're talking about a single chapter having importance for its POV, well it really is hard to argue against this one. This chapter doesn't just end Tyrion's two-book stint in King's Landing, it doesn't just end his time in Westeros as a member of the legendary House Lannister, it is a fantastic culmination of the incredibly deep-bedded narrative arc of Tyrion versus his father. He's already come up against the system and failed, he's split from the city he saved, he's been sentenced to death by his own family, and every ghost of the image of friends he once had has disappeared. But it all looks like complete peanuts compared to what actually happens here, I've got to say. Tyrion's entire psyche, the amazingly constructed personality disorders that we have discussed a thousand times over the past three books, are all mainly concentrated on the abusive relationship with his father. That is for pretty much all of Tyrion, 98% of him trickles down back to Tywin, or trickles up rather. That relationship is horrible, even at the very best of times, but when we introduce Shay and the idea of sex workers and love and betrayal into the mix, it is truly indescribable. This is far too much of a job for one podcast, two podcasts, ten. This is such a huge, complex moment that we just can't hit on all bases, it's impossible. And this is also the turn, the turn for Tyrion. Throughout the reread, we've spoken about the foreshadowing and the build-up for what we've often termed Dance Tyrion, and this is his grand entrance. We can and have traced the elements of that person right back to his hatred of the veil back in Game of Thrones and all those darker thoughts he had then. We've been able to stretch it out, but this is the moment. This is where we really get to see him. And certainly, we've had enough build-up in his last couple of chapters, like I said, this is the singular moment, or maybe three singular moments, that throw Tyrion down a new emotional path, and a new physical path. That one was already guaranteed. If Tyrion wanted to leave, he obviously had to get out of King's Landing, but heading off of this kind of emotional burden, that's a different matter, we didn't see that one coming. And that future, that's a whole different discussion, we'll save that for later. It's the birthplace of Tyrion's eastern journey, one that sends him through the three cities, across the Slaver's Bay, with already having met one Targaryen, and most of us expecting him to meet another by series end. And Tyrion is often considered one of the big three of the series. He met another briefly at the beginning, but the idea of him eventually meeting Daenerys, and the effect he's already had on Aegon, fake Aegon, well, again, that's another area, could take up a whole podcast, but we'll have to save some more of those thoughts for the end. And likewise, at the end, we're going to have to try and sum up Storm Tyrion, because it is a hell of an arc from where he began, kind of right after the Battle of the Blackwater, down on his luck, and, well, he didn't really ever get all that much higher, but at least a little bit higher before tumbling back down to this. It's an incredible arc. So many are in this book. It's really hard to pick out, but we love Tyrion. He remains kind of a main character, even if it's not so much as it was in Clash of Kings. Still, it's a big moment. It's a big task to tap that off by George, and I think we can say he covered it. Before we start, let's give the briefest of overviews for how many other people this chapter affects us. I'll try and keep it on this chapter for now. We'll do the overall at the end. We have the end of Shay's life and a brutal murder. We have Tywin, one of the great puppet masters of Westeros, not just in this era, but in the past as well. One of the most evil men we ever meet, dying. We also have Varys being forced into the next phase of his grandest plans. Cersei is now thrust into rule and the whole city suffers for it. While Jaime experiences his only major emotional break. 
And that's even before we consider the second tier characters like Pod and Kyburn or Bron. All of this changes it for all of them. It changes it for everyone in this city. We also end the chapter with an act of revenge for the greatest crime so far, the Red Wedding. All that planning and that sense of victory, that grand scheming for Tywin's legacy, and what has it brought him, really? Mere months of victory, and then death. And we know his legacy is about to rot quicker than he does, which is saying something. So many people more qualified than I have already spoken about how we'll see the difference between the legacies of Eddard Stark and Tywin Lannister, so that's just one example of how far-reaching this chapter is. I'm not even sure we've seen such an important act since Ned's own death. That's really how important this is. One more brief caveat before we really begin. Let's try the monumental task of imagining we are first-time readers for this chapter. I mean, the mind boggles. I mean, how, that's an impossible task. I, like many of you, saw the show first. Not all of you, but many of you saw the show first, so can't even really relate to reading this completely fresh. But I do have incredibly clear memories of 2014 when the last episode of Season 4 came out. P.S. The Children is my favourite episode of Game of Thrones ever. And I've said that multiple times. And it just so happens to be on last night. So I actually caught the scene that covers this chapter. So that's handy. And I've got these incredible clear memories of my jaw just opening wider and wider and never really closing. The same thing happens when reading this chapter for the first time. Who in the world could have seen this coming? How could it be anything less than mind-blowing? Yes, we could assume there's going to be some last-minute escape or something of that nature so we don't have to say goodbye to yet another main character in this book. But the death of Tywin? How, how dare we dare to hope? And having that win mixed in with Shay's brutal murder, with the only two friendly Lannisters having this big emotional break and breaking it apart, again, the mind truly, truly boggles. We could easily spend a good two hours on this chapter alone and still only scratch the surface. But I guess we should shoot our shot and get what we get. Let's begin here with a quote. After his mama's farce of a trial, his sweet sister and loving father might prefer to dispose of him quietly rather than risk a public execution. I could tell the mob a few choice things if they let me speak, but would they be that foolish? So considering how much we have to cover, George doesn't waste time as we open with Tyrion's door also opening and him preparing to die. Again, a first-time reader might have been genuinely expecting an execution scene, it's not like it would be new for us, and Tyrion raises some tension himself by suggesting he might even be killed down in the cells instead of given a public execution, the one that he deserves if you want to look at it that way. That's an interesting argument. We'll find out in a second that it's actually been decided in favour of the public showing, with Tyrion being killed on the alternate grounds, but I wonder how tough a decision that was. On the one hand, Tywin probably would have preferred a cell death rather than the massive cheer at the death of a Lannister. Then again, he knows the need for the justice to be public, considering this is the murder of a king we're talking about. You can't just say, oh yeah, we've dealt with that, but, uh, don't worry about that. You need that to be addressed. So I say he'd ideally choose a smaller execution, somewhere in the Red Keep, so that the assembled court could at least witness it. And he's in total denial about any secrets Tyrion might have to share, so that wouldn't be so much of a problem for him. Cersei is much more interesting. She knows Tyrion would have plenty to say about her and Jaime, her and several others, maybe about Robert, and definitely about Joffrey. But I don't see her being able to resist the humiliation of Tyrion being dragged before the masses and then executed. She probably wants to see him beg for his life. Maybe she just insists his tongue is torn out first, maybe that covers all bases. Even for Tyrion, it's an interesting question. Does he want his end to come privately, in front of five or six, so that he can't be mocked any further? Or does he want what is due to him as a Lannister and a former hand? Twisted as it is, I think his ego probably chooses the latter. I can still bite and kick. I'll die with a taste of blood in my mouth. That's something. This is very key for the rest of this chapter. If Tyrion is resigned to his fate, he's going to go down swinging. He's still got that much pride. He's still that much of a lion. And what happens if you back a lion into a corner? He's got nothing left, so why not? Everything has been taken from him in an incredibly painful fashion. He had a glimpse of hope in Oberyn, that's been snuffed out. 
He could have at least believed Shay would mourn him and go on to be happy. That was torn away as well. Sandra's gone and he still doesn't even know Jamie's there. There are no more positives to consider, so maybe leaving a few claw marks on his way down is the only way to even slightly balance out the fact that he's about to die. We've had a lot of reunions and important meetings in the ending of this book, and we get another huge one here. Huge, huge, huge. Probably the most important Tyrion could have short of meeting Tysha again. When Jamie enters and the two have to compare their physical changes, it really shows how long they've been apart. We've not seen them together since that Lannister lunch in Winterfell, when it was all golden curls and healthy bodies. It is so strange to think that this is the only other time we get to see them together, especially considering how often they both think of each other. And for all we know, it might be the last we ever see of this pair, and this might be it. It might be all we get. The comparison of lost noses and lost hands is also a very effective way to sum up what this war has already cost them. Yet we know there are more emotional wounds to follow, especially for Tyrion. It's weird for us to see three books summed up in this manner, but you have to enjoy Tyrion laughing at the whole thing. Tywin's legacy is on thin legs already, and it relates so strongly to both of these men having those previous thoughts that essentially boil down to, and they say we won the war. That is such a large part of George's wider message about the nature of war and the lack of winners. If we look at family Lannister, Tywin's really the only one who's not had to suffer. We know the emotional and physical pain of Jaime, Cersei and Tyrion, we know that well. But Joffrey's died, Mercella's been shipped off, Lancel's at death's door, Kevin has already lost one son. So it makes the end of this chapter even more strongly felt. Tywin has to pay his due eventually. But that's all intro. The chapter really starts with this next quote. You won't need last words. I'm rescuing you. Jamie's voice was strangely solemn. Woohoo! Okay, Jamie is stepping up to the plate. First time readers might have hoped for such an occurrence, especially since George has been holding off on bringing these two characters together. But actually seeing it on the page is a heartfelt moment that blows Oberyn's I'll be your champion moment out of the water. This is way better. Tyrion being Tyrion, he reacts with some dry humour, while most of us are A, relieved that Jamie isn't there to kill him, and B, thrilled that Tyrion is going to live and that Jamie is using his newfound agency for such a worthy cause. Tyrion only has time for the one joke before he's right down to business and getting the head out of there. The note of Jamie's voice as solemn is interesting as well. I think there's two parts to it. Firstly, even though he is saving his brother's life, he knows this is going to make his relationship with both Cersei and Tywin probably irreparable. I even wonder if he had intended to confess what he'd done before there was the added complication of Tywin's murder. It would have made for an interesting bullet point in that white book he was looking at in his last chapter. But the second part is a lot more simple. It's a goodbye to Tyrion. They've been apart for so long, now they get these few sparse moments together before saying goodbye, probably for the final time. Jamie's already thinking he's lost the rest of his family, and this is another aspect of that, this is an extra knife wound. Plus, we have that extra weight of guilt from this debt that we're going to be discussing in a moment. And by the by, while I think we've had more than enough evidence of Jamie being changed in his return to King's Landing, him putting the guards to sleep instead of killing them is also a nice note on that. We know that old Jamie might have done things just a bit differently. As Jamie outlines the plan for escape, we get an honestly heartfelt paragraph of brotherly love. Laughter, hugging, a kiss goodbye, it might be the most emotional and vulnerable moment we see out of either one of them. If only they'd been able to leave it there, it would have made a huge difference for both of them going forward. But that might have to be our largest and last alarm of this part of the whole book, because Jamie is trying to be an honest man. He has read in that ledger, like we said last week, and as much as he protests here, I think it's plain the guilt is on him, and he knows this might be his final chance to confess. It comes out pretty easy when Tyrion presses after all, and this chapter takes on an entirely new angle. Tysha, Jamie said softly. Tysha? Tyrion's stomach tightened. What of her? Whoa, 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 again. The second woe moan already. Now Tysha is being brought up of all people. This is not the time, guys. You need to get out of here. This whole chapter is multiple balls coming out of left field, but this one might have been guessed at the least. We've had to think about Tysha a little bit lately in terms of comparing to Shay and the aspects of betrayal and emotional pain, but we had no idea she'd be brought up so pointedly. 
Before we are too long to be surprised, we get one of the larger open palm slaps of the entire series, with Jamie's quote here. I never bought her for you. That was a lie that father commanded me to tell. Taisha was... She was what she seemed to be, a crofter's daughter, chance met on the road. Tyrion reacts with silence. It's tough for us not to do the same. And it fits because we as readers likely do pause for a moment as the true repercussions of this revelation occur to a second by agonising second. It's like a multi-layered reveal. If you're anything like me, your stomach fills with acid as it all becomes clear. This is a reframing of Tyrion's entire life. The reason, and let's be clear, it was a pretty damn weak reason to begin with, for his life's pain was all a lie. It never happened. And while we're here, let's also mention that this was clear abuse of Jamie by Tywin, making him tell those lies and his persuasion of why it's a good idea. It's sickening, especially when Tyrion mentions she was the same age as Sansa. Yeah, that really frames it in shadow, doesn't it? Oh dear. This is just as big of a revelation for readers as it is for Tyrion, and I think gobsmacking is the only appropriate word, and even that one doesn't do it justice. Again, we have to be clear. Does the fact that Taisha wasn't a sex worker make her rape in the barracks worse? No, 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 no. It was already horrific. The very definition of horrific. That's not the earth-shattering part here. The earth-shattering part is that Tyrion has spent his entire life believing himself fundamentally unlovable. That he can't find a genuine relationship that he is unworthy. That's what he was taught when he was however old he was. That has made him who he is. The drinking, the humour as a defence mechanism, the brothels, that armour he told Jon Snow about... The need for acceptance and love, all of that stems from Taisha. All of everything Tyrion is as a person all stems back to something that it turns out was false. I mean, how often have we discussed this as a feature of Tyrion? How often have we explored this weakness and where it's got him? Nearly every bloody Tyrion chapter, all 35 of them. This is exactly how he's wound up where he is. And none of it needed to be. How can we even begin to describe the emotional wound that opens up? It's outside the box, it's outside the universe discovering that everything that went wrong in your life didn't need to. Tyrion had the genuine love of a woman, he just never knew it. And what's worse, that lie came from the one person in the whole world you would actually trust and truly love in Jaime. I can't begin to do justice to just how awful this is for Tyrion, it's abominable. We already know Tyrion felt copious amounts of guilt over the barracks and Tysha's fate, as he should, but the feeling is increased now that he discovers she truly did love him. Again, it doesn't mean Tysha deserved that even if she didn't love Tyrion, but we can see why his pain increases. And while we're at it, there's another layer of shadows to add on to Tywin. It must be made clear that the Barracks Act was evil enough, whatever the reasoning. But now we find out he's been lying behind this best for Tyrion thing, and find out it's just a psychotic act by a father not considering a girl good enough for a son with his surname. Evil, evil of the worst kind. I will say it's fitting we find this out and have the Barracks refreshed to us before Tywin's end. It feels like we've barely scratched the surface of this reveal and the deep emotional pain it's resulted in. But we should also give it its due as the first of Tyrion's three acts in this chapter that mentally destroy him. I feel like if you mention this Tyrion chapter to someone, they'll naturally think of Tywin and Shay's deaths as the two big selling points. But this is where those two come from. This is where Dan's Tyrion actually comes to life. Yes, we've had the setup with Joffrey and the trial and all of that, but it's nothing compared to this three act chapter. I think the number three is important because we so often talk about Tyrion's three victory chapter back in early Clash of Kings as the height of his powers and him living his best life. If you listen to Spork or Spectacular, you'll know that Brotherhood Without Manners refers to it as the Hattrick chapter, which I will definitely be using from here on out, I like that. So doesn't that really make this the best conclusion to the King's Anding arc? He started with three victories, he ends with three harrowing defeats. And that becomes an even larger discussion when we consider if Tywin's death is a victory or a loss, but that'll come later. We're still on Taisha for now. 
Well, well, we would be. I feel like I could keep talking about Taisha for ages. We owe it to her. She should remain our focus. I almost feel bad for moving on, but I guess we do have a lot to get to. Next quote here. He hit him. It was a slap, backhanded, but he put all of his strength into it. All of his fear, all of his rage, all of his pain. Jamie was squatting, unbalanced. The blow sent him tumbling backward to the floor. I really love this moment. Indescribable rage is just one of the emotions Tyrion is feeling right now, but obviously the one that bubbles up the quickest. I really like the imagery here, because Tyrion's personality and character is based on the fact he's not a strong fighter with a traditional body type. He can't do things like this as other men do. But all of that is forgotten for a moment, as his pure emotion comes out and takes over. And the fact that this is against Jaime, who has been painted to both the reader and Tyrion as the symbol of the war in the fighter, yet still gets knocked down, knocked on his ass, because that's how pissed Tyrion is. It's kind of cathartic for the reader too, because although it probably won't occur to readers until after reading through, we have reason to be pissed with Jamie as well. Even though we've just spent a book witnessing his change and having become invested in his quest to become a better person, this is a bit of a slap. We've had no idea of this great crime that Jamie has been hiding for so long, even if you can now read back and see the little hints here and there. And it's bad. It is a bad lie that has utterly destroyed Tyrion, so it's not painting Jamie in the best light. Still, I think we can likely see past that and see that Tywin is the true evil and that Jamie was just put in a bad situation where he unfortunately made the wrong choice. I also love that George includes Tyrion trying to storm off after threatening Jamie, only to walk into a locked gate. In any other framing, it'd be comedic, whereas here, it just speaks brilliantly to his frustrations and not being able to get out of there and still having to rely on others. And the threats, the promise of paying debts, we can just feel the full emotion of it all. When it's Jamie's turn to ask for truth, we see how the Tysa revelation is already giving us Dance Tyrion. He describes the question as another knife in the gut, and I think part of that is realising Jamie would even believe him capable of doing such a thing. But the rage takes over almost instantly as Tyrion begins to buy into the concept of Mr. Dance Tyrion, of Tyrion the monster, and he decides he will spread some of the pain that he's just received. He did say he would go down biting and kicking, remember. Yet before his great lie, he still feels the need to justify why he could have killed Joffrey, why it would have been deserved. But either way, it ends in the same thing. Tyrion admitting to a crime he didn't commit, purely because he knows that will hurt his brother. You poor, stupid, blind, crippled fool. Must I spell every little thing out for you? Very well. Cersei is a liar. She's been fucking Lancel and Osmond Kettleblack and probably Moonboy for all I know. And I am the monster they all say I am. Yes, I killed your vile son. He made himself grin. It must have been a hideous sight to see, there in the torchlit gloom. There's the monster. There's the role that Tyrion is truly ready to buy into. Everyone already thinks of him, so why not? He's seen what being the good guy, if we're going to simplify, has got him in terms of winning the Blackwater, yet still being hated by the city. He made himself a monster in the trial. He is now. To be honest, we're wearing the dance Tyrion skin from here on out. In terms of wanting to hurt Jamie, he throws the truth about Cersei in there too, because he knows that's going to hurt way more than anything about Joffrey. And he's dead on there. As we discussed in Jamie's final chapter, the truth of Cersei is going to become his own mantra going forward. It's the fact he's going to obsess over and wonder whether it's true. Well, ironically, the lie about Joffrey barely gets any more of his attention. That's an interesting question over whether, if this trial had never happened, and Jamie and Tyrion had been reunited under happier circumstances, would Tyrion have withheld the truth about Cersei's bedtime habits in the vein of saving Jamie from pain? Obviously, this is way, way less important than Jamie's lie about Tysha, but it's interesting that the themes so closely align. Personally, I think Tyrion would have told Jamie anyway. As quickly as they are reunited, Jamie and Tyrion split again, forever in terms of the story we have so far. Now we finally get a true goodbye to Jamie, even though we'll be picking him up again soon, and in only a matter of hours in in world time. We've just added on so much of the emotional weight he'll carry through Feast in this here chapter. And if we thought we had the foundation of his rough relationship with Cersei in the last chapter, we just got a whole bunch more. 
and now we know that his first attempt at being a better person and doing the right thing ended semi-disastrously with him breaking the best relationship he's ever had with another human and being complicit in his father's murder. It comes very close to dragging him from the noble road entirely, although I would say he manages to stay on path just about during Feast. But we'll have plenty of time to discuss him later. We still have a very hurt Tyrion to talk about, and that note of his love for his brother being so strong that even after all this, he still wants to call out to Jaime and reunite. That's just a bit heartbreaking. But he lets him go, and we have to move on to the next part of the chapter. And it's about Varys. Varys is probably the last person that Tyrion wants to see right now. He's another symbol of someone who presented themselves as a friend, and then turned around and betrayed him. At least, that's how Tyrion sees it. To be fair to Varys, he was always the kind of upfront about this stuff. He even admits he's only here because of Jaime's persuasion. I think it's pretty impressive how quickly Varys abandons his public life to just live in the walls or whatever he's doing until Kevin's epilogue. He had no way of knowing Jaime would come and force his hand into helping, but likely knew it instantly meant changing his entire life for the continued pursuit of his Targaryen goal. There's no way he would trust Jaime to keep quiet about his part in helping Tyrion, and if that comes out, he's done for. Tywin does instantly suspect Varys later on, so good instincts there by the spider. That Tywin death is the kicker, sure, but I think Jaime pushed this on him either way. Yet even with that knowledge, he adapts pretty easily. I do enjoy his note on basically everyone hating him and no one caring about him. It seems to be specifically aligned to how Tyrion has always felt about himself. Plus, I like his not-so-vague threat that Tyrion will perish without his guidance to getting out of these tunnels. Now we really discover Varys' secret power before we also say goodbye to him. An insane knowledge of the Red Keep's own secret. These incredible passages and hidden rooms and listening spots and all of this stuff. It's incredible he's learned it all, first off. But to remember it all as well, this is a big old castle. And now, so many things fall into place as we think back through the series, at all the times we wondered, how could Varys have known that? It's pretty incredible and is one of my favourite acts of the series. Varys truly is a spider. Or in some ways, he's the Batman of the Red Keep. Tyrion thinking on good places to kill someone also has me wondering how many bodies are in these passages. But mainly, I think we just need to give Varys a nod for how damn effective he is in this role. And he's going to continue to be, because public life, that's over. We have to wait a long time until we see Varys again, and we can guess he's just scrabbling around in the walls and listening to more stuff. As they head through the tunnels, Tyrion has this thought. I arrived here King's Hand, riding through the gates at the head of my own sworn men, and I leave like a rat scuttling through the dark, holding hands with a spider. There's major Ned vibes here, as if we didn't have enough of the return of Dungeon Varys and being near the cells in general. And there's also the whole false king killer thing that's linking them pretty strongly together. But now we come to the discovery of the Hand's Tunnel, which you know I like the inclusion of as a big castle guy. I had to cover a lot of this for the castle's book. There's lots of theories about it, but personally, I just hope we get to return to these passages or see them used again. Could be Varys, could be Tyrion now, could even be used to get Danny's forces in if Tyrion knows about it, who knows. Obviously, the Tower, that's out of commission, but the rest of the Red Keep, I just want to see all those. Although, I will question why the tunnel hasn't been discovered under the rubble of the Tower of the Hand after Cersei's wildfire party. I wonder if that's still to come, I don't know, I have to check. Either way, Varys must be pretty annoyed at the destruction of one of his best listening places. Luckily, I think he's got a few more. Next, Tyrion Fort here. This is the place Shay told me of when Varys first led her to my bed. We are below the Tower of the Hand. Oh yes, huge tension building now as we realise just what Tyrion has in mind. If Tyrion is going to have to suffer through the Red Keep's secrets, He's going to use them for his own gain before he leaves. Biting and kicking, remember that, biting and kicking. Let's also bear in mind, Varys doesn't have to give the info on how to reach the bedchamber if he doesn't want to. He can refuse and offer Tyrion the cell, or use that same threat of just leaving him there. But instead, he gives it up with only a thin layer of protest. So is it possible he realised what was going on in Tyrion's head and wanted Tywin to die? Clearly he couldn't have specifically planned it, and perhaps knocking off Tywin had always seemed too much of a risk before, but if a convicted king killer is offering himself up on a plate to get the deed done, why not? 
I'm not sure how that works in terms of his timing for the, the grand plan, but he knows it massively destabilizes the realm, which is his eventual goal. So this, this is pretty handy. All of this is just reacting to opportunity for Varys, the same as Tyrion's eventual funneling to Daenerys is. Couldn't have planned it, but you've got to use what the game gives you. So Tyrion begins his climb, the long ladder climb that serves as a physical gateway for Tyrion to pass through to reach his eventual goal, in the same way that Arya had a gateway of vengeance for her exit. It's even more poignant for Tyrion though, and links to his hitting Jaime. A dwarf shouldn't be able to make this climb, but he's defying the pigeonholes he's always been put in all of his life because this is how badly he wants it. He's willing to pay a little pain. Besides, one pigeonhole was that he couldn't be loved, and he's just found out that was false all along. So why can't he climb a ladder too? Any man of normal size would have had to crawl on hands and knees, but Tyrion was short enough to walk upright. At last, a place made for dwarves. Yes, finally, a place that feels natural. It makes him feel that this decision is right, this is obviously right, and this never happens. There's also the mention of feet scuffing on stone. We get a few of those, and I guess that's why Varys always wears those soft slippers. As Tyrion progresses along the tunnel and overhears the Lannister guards, we get more of how easily Varys has been able to gather info all this time, and the mind boggles again at how much he must actually know. Tyrion thinks, little birds indeed, and while he's right, Varys has championed that idea to stop anyone looking too closely into how he actually knows so much, it's only semi-false. We know he does make use of real little birds too, a lot of them. But that's enough talk from Varys for now. Now we come to another major and incredibly dark moment in the fall of Tyrion Lannister. My lord? Everyone's voice called. Again, straight out of left field. Who the hell is that, we are thinking? Until Tyrion's next fall, of course. That might have hurt me once, when I still felt pain. So the ball drops. And yet again, whoa. We're saying whoa. Surely not. Surely this is a step too far, even for these damn Lannisters. That Tyrion sentence goes to show how far he's already gone and how badly this news has affected him. This is a chapter about Tyrion physically escaping death, but his soul is not so lucky. Tyrion the monster returns. He fully looks like the boogeyman now. He's seemingly materialising out of the shadow, stepping out of the dark with an evil grin. He's got the whole look down. It must be an absolute horrible moment for Shay. She quickly claims that Cersei made her humiliate Tyrion like that, and that Tywin is intimidating her. That's pretty much word for word what I guessed a couple of weeks ago, and I still maintain I think that's what happened with Shay. It doesn't make her 100% innocent, but does show us the evil strings of Cersei and Tywin that she's dancing on. It's their fault, not hers. And I really, really have to take issue of anyone who says she deserves what is about to happen to her. Tyrion is obviously a bit obsessed about how much of his life has been a lie, considering what he's just learnt, and questions Shay about that side of their relationship. And her response is a bit heartbreaking, because she's clearly saying what she thinks Tyrion wants to hear, and what will save her, and it ends up doing the opposite. Did you ever like my touch? More than anything, she said. My giant of Lannister. That was the worst thing you could have said, sweetling, Tyrion thought. Well, and we thought that phrase had its day back at the trial. No, it's come back again. And those damn song lyrics make a return as well, before they settle into being the first of Tyrion's two constant dance mantras. We have to be crystal clear on what happens here. Murder. Full on murder. Tyrion, in cold blood, murders Shay. Let's not mess around. The discussion on whether Tyrion actually wins or loses by killing Tywin is valid, like we said earlier. But no one is questioning that his father deserved it. Not so for Shay. This isn't justice. This isn't revenge killing. This isn't Aya and the Tickler in any way, shape or form. This is Tyrion finally snapping and murdering a sex worker who did her job. And he does it because his feelings are hurt. I'm not belittling the extreme trauma that Tyrion faces in this chapter. But that is what it boils down to in the end. Tyrion lashes out in anger. And unfortunately, this is all too similar to about a kajillion real world cases. So the sadness around this event is palpable. My apologies, but if you're of the opinion that Shay had this coming, I'm really going to have to ask you to step off the aisles. It's just not true, not correct, it was murder. Is self-defence an issue here? No, not self-defence, but self-preservation. 
Because to be fair, if Tyrion just turns around and walks away, Shay will clearly shout for the guards and that's the end of Tyrion. But that's not an excuse for murder. And even so, you can't convince me that self-preservation is what Tyrion is thinking when he sees that chain and goes for Shay. Because it's the chain that does it. I'm not sure what it is with Tyrion and chains. He had one dominate his clash story on the Black War. We have this one here. And then he becomes a slave in dance. But to focus on this one, what does it represent when Tyrion sees it? That Tywin has stolen all. He's stolen Tyrion's office, his chain, his sex worker slash girlfriend, and we really get into Tywin comparisons when we see how much Tyrion views Shay as an object here. He stole Tywin's entire life in terms of taking Tysha away from him. Not just Tysha, but the idea of Tysha. Does Tyrion do this without the Tysha news? It's honestly hard to say, but I'd probably say no. There's also a huge element of hypocrisy. Tywin has had this thing about sex workers and how beneath Lannisters the whole thing is, and he's put Tyrion through all this worry about what could happen to Shay, and it's all a lie. All of that pain that came about from Tysha, it's all a lie. The reasoning was entirely hypocritical and unjust. It's a real unmasking into the true Tywin as well. We'll find out more in a minute, but he's all facade, as I think we've probably guessed by now. All of this dark moment is it's over in mere paragraphs, and we move into something beyond mere tension now, as Tyrion takes a moment to consider what weapon he wants to use to kill his father. It takes some truly special writing to just lay out the intention and yet keep the suspense, and George does so masterfully. So we come to the main event of the chapter. We've already had two, here comes the last. Many will say it's the main event of the book. I say the Red Wedding, but I can see what you mean. It's just too huge to talk about fully. There's a thousand angles to consider. And yet, this interaction is a page and a half long. That's it. That is insane for the amount of importance we're getting here. Difficult as it is to separate all these different elements from this, let's give it a go. Even though Tywin keeps up his facade of supreme confidence, I say he's telling Tyrion that he intended to send him to the wall. It's bullshit, and merely is trying to save his own life. We've already heard from multiple sources that the whole thing has been planned out for the very next day. So what's Tywin claiming his plan is here? March Tyrion out into the tourney grounds in front of hundreds of bloodthirsty citizens, and then pardon him? No, no way. Besides, Cersei would rage if that was to happen, which would be fun to see, but still. What did you do with Tysha? Tysha? He does not even remember her name. The girl I married. This is where the conversation really gets going. Tywin doesn't even remember Tysha's name. Same way he didn't bother giving orders about Elia. Same way I'm sure he doesn't give a twig about Shay. He just doesn't care. His misogyny is on full display here. It's really bone deep. As is his elitism over class. All of his not caring about the world outside the Lannister name is plain for us to see. But if the chain was the catalyst in regards to Shay, it is Tywin's use of a particular word that I'm not going to repeat here that gets Tyrion now. Although note... Tywin at least gets a warning. Shay didn't. But why does the word set Tyrion off? Because the word and the connotations of it are what was used to mask Tysha's true love. So you see what I mean about Jamie's reveal being the true catalyst and Shay kind of being salt in the wound. But Tyrion also saw Shay as more than that word and turned out to be wrong, so it's a kind of a bitter irony. Did you have her killed? His father pursed his lips. There was no reason for that. She had learned her place and had been well paid for her day's work, I seem to recall. I suppose the steward set her on her way. I never thought to inquire. On her way where? This is easily forgettable in the moment, considering what's about to happen. Firstly, I feel dirty just having said that line about being paid for a day's work, so I want to forget that quickly. But Tyrion desires to find out what's happened to Tysha. Was she killed? Has she been sent somewhere? It's his only grip left on life, the one hint of positivity, and we're going to see that carry over into dance. Everything else is just death. As we discover when Tyrion brushes off the question, again because he doesn't care, and uses that specific word again. Speaking of words, Tyrion is true to his, as he finally pays his largest debt. A life for a life. And twang goes the crossbow. 
The facade finally breaks and we get a little indulgement as we see Tywin's eyes go glassy. You, you are no son of mine. Now that's where you're wrong, father. Why, I believe I'm you writ small. Do me a kindness now and die quickly. I have a ship to catch. On the edge of death, Tyrion finally says what his greatest hope is, that Tyrion is not his son. But to inflict the most pain, Tyrion sends his father to hell by saying in fact they are one and the same. And Jenna Lannister certainly thinks so. And we've agreed multiple times as we've gone through Tyrion's arc. It's true, though I think we should always remember Tywin became Tywin because his dad used to get laughed at, and it hurt Tywin's ego. Tyrion became mini Tywin because he had the worst possible father in the world. A bit of a difference. But the stink that filled the privy gave ample evidence that the oft-repeated joke about his father was just another lie. Lord Tywin Lannister did not, in the end, shit gold. Yeah, everything about Tywin was a lie, right down to the end. As we'll find out in Feast, everything was rotten. The whole thing was a shiny act based on ego. Like we said earlier, his legacy is going to rot near instantly. He left nothing of value. I don't think we need to linger too long here on comparing that to the lasting impact for good that Eddard Stark left on the world and for his children. Tywin, in the end, was nothing. And there we have it. That's it. How do we even start talking about the lasting impact of this chapter? There's a thousand angles, like I said. The Lannisters are going to fall. Cersei is going to have free reign to ruin the city. The Tyrells will surge. And, I mean, a million other things just in the city. We also have a huge change in Fae Kagon and Danny's arc and with Tyrion going east, and on and on and on. Tyrion himself is going to go down a very, very tough-to-read spiral of bitterness and yet more evil that I'm not really looking forward to. For someone who many considered the main character for a long time, or maybe still do, for someone who was many people's favourite character, for someone we saw at his very best and figured was a good guy, and definitely someone we sympathised with at the least, he just falls off a cliff. This will be tough to deal with, and even if there are hints of him returning to the lighter side as we go, it's not an easy way back. And this is our goodbye to him, all the way until Dance. That's pretty weird. We had more chapters with him than any other character so far, and it's not even all that close, aside from Jon. This is going to be even weirder than not having Jon or Danny in Feast. And, and true, we do get a glimpse of Jon in that book, and at least we know what Danny is up to. Meanwhile, we've got zero clue about Tyrion for first-time readers, and I truly can't imagine the weight people had if they were reading along when the books originally came out. If there was anything you ever wanted to follow up on, it's probably this. But still, it definitely will be odd not talking about Tyrion for a long time. It's also our goodbye to King's Landing for this book. It might have taken much more of a backseat in the first half, but it definitely didn't in the end. We still had two marriages, Joffrey's death, Sansa's escape, Oberyn's death, everything with Jaime, Tywin and Shay's deaths, and now Tyrion's escape. And really, it's never the same again. A whole heap of new players will come in under Cersei, with her own weird small council and all the extra kettle blacks and all that. The rise of the Faith and the Tyrells and all these things. Plus, aside from a few early Jamie chapters, we won't see the city for a sympathetic character's eyes like we always have in the past. Instead, we get the pleasure of entering Cersei's mind for an entirely different city and entirely different view. I think we're all looking forward to that one. As for this chapter, well, we could go on all day. It is one of the most important chapters ever, there's no argument. The combination of personal and overall arcs is... It's just wow. And I think wow is how we're going to have to leave it for now. As for Tyrion overall, it's a real hard arc in this book to watch and read or listen to rather, and see just how far he's brought low. Considering how low he starts after the Battle of the Black War, how much he's lost, we have that pretty like roundup chapter at the beginning. Well, it gets worse from there, doesn't it? This book is really just the descent of Tyrion into that dance Tyrion character. This is the slow transformation after the highs of Clash of Kings and even the highs during the battle itself, all changing, all going through his marriage to Sansa, his humiliation there, that build-up of tension with Joffrey. And we don't even really get that much Tyrion versus Cersei stuff in this. It's more 
Joffrey, it's more humiliation and obviously it's a lot of Tywin. This is the great reunion between the two after that little snippet we get in Game of Thrones. Now we have this whole time of him just having to be around Tywin and deal with Tywin and all the effects that Tywin likes to bring and it's him ending that. So it's funny to look at considering the ending because everything gets much worse for Tyrion but he also accomplishes his ultimate goal, ultimate relief of offing Tywin, killing Tywin. In many ways he's a hero, he's done a good thing that will be good for many people but because of George's supreme writing it's also a horrible thing and like we said earlier does he really win or lose killing Tywin because yes he gets rid of Tywin and he gets revenge but the effect on him mentally and emotionally not so clear cut so it's an amazing arc to see everything that Tyrion goes through even with that backseat and with that kind of reduction and role at least in the beginning and then just everything coming at you thick and fast at the trial and Oberyn and the escape and amazing really amazing you wouldn't think we'd get better Tyrion stuff than Clash. And I'm not saying it's better, but it's at least on par. So we're really going to miss that. And obviously quite a difference in tone when we return to Tyrion. But we've got a little wait until then, but we do look forward to seeing him again and discussing all of that, even if it's uh, not quite as high and <laughs> not quite as high and cool as Clash and Summer Storm. But there we go. Let's move on to the second chapter of today, Sam 5. It's a pretty tough act to follow, Sam. Best of luck. You do know a bit about Rubbish Fathers, to be sure, but still. We now have two Castle Black chapters to finish off their character's arc. That huge Tyrion chapter makes it easy to forget, but we had three Night's Watch chapters last week as well, so Castle Black really does dominate the end of this book, probably more so than any other single place in any of the other books. We had most of the tying up of Sam's individual arc in his fourth chapter last week, and this one is used more to give hints about what is to come of this new relationship between Stannis and the Night's Watch especially about Stannis' logistics for the true war, which I find incredibly interesting, and about the possibility of it all being false. But mainly, it is Sam acting on those impulses he had last week, and setting up Jon's next and final chapter in a moment. Sam finally puts his concerns aside, and gets down to business here. This is the Business Sam chapter. We open with Stannis addressing what is essentially a temporary council of the Night's Watch leaders, plus Aemon and Sam, seeing as no Lord Commander has been chosen still, and these are all the remaining candidates, although Burr Marsh has just withdrawn. Before we even get into that side of things, Sam feels like Melisandre is focusing on him. Here's the first quote of the chapter. I have no place here, Sam thought when her red eyes fell upon him. Don't look at me, I'm just the Mace's steward. As well as that being a bit of a repeat from John's earlier chapter openings in terms of I have no place here, I'd certainly forgotten this little detail, and you've got to think it's going to have some payoff eventually. As it stands, there's no reason for Melisandre to be staring at Sam, but if you're interesting to her, it probably means you're very interesting overall. So is this a hint of Sam having some big role to play in the eventual war? Possibly. We have a hint of that from Stannis later on as well. But it occurs to me that maybe Melisandre isn't staring at Sam at all, but Aemon. And that's slightly more worrying. Or maybe it is Sam, because she knows she has just burnt his grandfather in order to get here, even if Sam does not know that detail yet. In fact, I'm unsure he ever does find out, to be honest. Anyway, the point of the scene is that there's still no Lord Commander, and Stannis is getting impatient. He hasn't come all this way and saved their ass just to wait around. He's got a new war to prepare for, one that just so happens to involve not only saving them from another threat, but requires their participation too. I find this approach to the situation really interesting, especially when Stannis reveals he isn't going to order anything or interfere, he really just wants them to hurry up and get on with it. He wants to involve them, that's the key part, this is to be an alliance. If he really wanted to, Stannis is in a position to threaten or even bear steel, as bad as an idea as that would be if you were hoping to rally in the north, but instead he wants willing participation. I like that aspect of him, I'm not sure we would have seen that before Davos became hand and we had the old version of Stannis. What's even more enjoyable at the beginning is the king's straight dressing down of Janos Slint, and we can really pick any number of quotes for a quick laugh. I think the favourite maybe has to be this. Who better to command the black cloaks than the man who once commanded the gold, sire? 
Any of you, I would think. Even the cook. The look the king gave Slint was cold. Yeah, I definitely like that one. Janos goes to the same reliable moves, trying to butter up and basically kiss ass with the new boss, especially in the hope it might help him gain a new office. Instead, Stannis lays down some superb singers, such as that one we just said, to let Janos know that he considers him basically the anti-Stannis, and yet he still says he'll put up with him if needs be. That's how much respect he's giving the Night's Watch. We even find out a bit more about Slint's history in King's Landing and his long-standing relationship with Peter Baelish, as well as memories and how easily Littlefinger was able to get into King Robert's mind. Mace Draymond does his duty and reminds that crimes are wiped away at the wall, which is pretty annoying when you know as many of Slint's crimes as we do, but it is very on brand for Aemon to stick up for every brother, no matter whom. Once Stannis convinces the assembled officers and know that all except Slint are actually concerned with the integrity of the Night's Watch, or not going beyond their oaths to help the king, that he is not trying to use them for personal gain. He lays down exactly what it is he does want, and it is a bit of a doozy. Stannis crossed his arms. I shall require a few other things from you as well, things you may not be so quick to give. I want your castles, and I want the gift. Okay, definitely not messing around then. All castles, plus all the land the Night's Watch has to sustain itself. No biggie. Well, all vacant castles anyway, so that's something. But as well as pointing out those superior numbers, and he is actually being polite by asking, Stannis also makes a superb point that the watch is currently constructed is only wasting these resources. The castles, especially, have all been abandoned for decades, if not centuries, and serve no other purpose than housing cobwebs. In recent times, the same can be said for the majority of the gift as we saw through Bran's early storm chapters. Because the Night's Watch has weakened and lost the ability to protect the people who live there, they've really lost the right to argue they deserve it. Stannis can put the place to a positive use again, the very best positive use. I really like the idea of him actually filling the castle garrisons again. I very much doubt whether we ever get to see it, but the idea of seeing the wall in all its intended glory is pretty cool. Unsurprisingly, the brothers argue. Well, Bowen, Denny's, and Cotter do. A rare thing they all agree on, but you can see it's because all of them do genuinely care for the Night's Watch in their respective ways. And Jonas Slint remains quiet specifically because he doesn't care, and is probably still hoping maybe he'll be allowed to have one of these garrisons and get out of his oaths. That's all well and good and makes good sense, although the issue of the gift kind of gets skirted around. The Watch really can't argue with these castles all being garrisoned unless they do want to seem incredibly petty. But then Melisandre comes in again, as she did in the conversation with John talking about the extra caveat of night fires being kept outside each castle gate. Clearly, the officers are not much on board with this idea either, but find the whole subject a bit too sensitive and weird to actually protest. I take it that Melisandre wants these fires burning literally on the outside, as in on the other side of the wall. And again, that would look pretty cool to see all those fires along the wall, as well as maybe a good communication device. And they might even be a good defensive strategy. But while most officers feel too awkward to say anything, Mace Draymond steps up yet again. It is the war for the dawn you speak of, my lady, but where is the prince that was promised? It's easy to forget for rereaders, given everything we find out on A Feast for Crows, but this is a pretty major moment to find out that Aemon knows of such things. So far, this phrase, the prince that was promised, has only been mentioned in terms of Danny's dream in the House of the Undying and in terms of Melisandre. So for Aemon to know, hints at those major connections with Rhaegar and that Aemon is in on the whole prophecy gig. That's pretty huge. What else might you know? Can he expand on what the hell Rhaegar was up to? Could he meet Danny and clear things up for her? Sad for rereaders, very, very exciting for first-timers. Melisandre is probably glad this is getting brought up, as it gives a great opening to point out exactly who Stannis is, that this is a war of religion as well as practicality, and it's the opening to a major thread of the chapter, with Melisandre championing her aim and questioning. The other officers are probably pretty glad they get dismissed, this is way out of their comfort zone, but note that Stannis looks just as uncomfortable with all the preaching. Still, he stands by it with his closing statement. You called and I came, my lords. Now you must live with me or die with me. You'd best get used to that. That's a great Stannis line. I like that. 
The others are dismissed save for Eamon and Sam, and you could be forgiven for getting Sam was even present. It's a rarity for George's writing that that whole scene goes by with essentially no interaction or inner monologue from our POV. But anyway, Sam was really just an observer for all this, much like Ed and Hobb were, but now he's finding out he was specifically asked for. In the moment, that's terrifying for Sam, but I think later it will go towards his confidence that he's important enough to matter and thus important enough to make an effect. I'd like to think that another percentage of his self-confidence is due to seeing Eamon dust off his old courtly courtesies. Kings are no big deal to Eamon Targaryen, after all. And Sam obviously has a much larger percentage of his overall self owed to Eamon, but you get my point. Stannis mentions that he kind of respects Randall Tarly, and that makes sense. Unfortunately, Randall Tarly is the kind of guy that Stannis would respect. But it does make you wonder what Stannis would have been like with a son himself. Hmm, that might be a bit problematic. Another Eamon quote here. He has taken the black sire, Mace Jaime pointed out. I am well aware of that, the king said. I am aware of more than you know, Eamon Targaryen. Aha, so Stannis does know. That was a question I asked last week, and uh, I'd obviously forgotten this particular reveal. For the moment, it's glossed over, but we still don't know if Stannis is aware, or even cares, about their specific relationship between him and Eamon. He doesn't seem too bothered right now, but it speaks to what we said earlier about Melisandre maybe looking at Eamon. If she's aware he's a Targaryen, she's aware he has King's blood, Night's Watch Vow or no Night's Watch Vow. Perhaps she has already been bothering Stannis about the possibility of burning the old maester. I definitely wouldn't put it past her. Like I say, Stannis glosses over Aemon and actually gets talking with Sam about his slaying and other. And, as usual, Sam tries to deflect as much as possible, but I think this will subconsciously give him a bit of confidence for later as well. It's nice for us readers just to see Sam getting some true recognition. After all, he is the most important resource in terms of information about the others in the entire world right now. He knows more than anyone. Well, anyone we know about. Maybe Mance, but... At least we know about Sam. He alone has faced one down, and not only lived, but killed it. And he has superior knowledge about the Whites as well, and about the Dragonglass, even about the possible link to Craster and the sacrifice, even if that never gets brought up. I'm actually a bit surprised Stannis doesn't expressly order Jon to keep Sam up at the wall for these later uses he talks about, and as a reference point. Will that end up being a point of contention between King and Lord Commander, perhaps? While we're still talking about Dragonglass and Obsidian, we find out Dragonstone is going to be a major, major resource in the War for the Dawn. It is literally going to be the forge from which you need to get all your weapons, and I'm really enjoying those logistics again. This is something I had to think about a lot when I was writing the Castles books, so it's always good to uh, revisit that kind of thing. It also gets slipped in that Roland Storm has been left as Castellan, so that's cool. But as far as I remember, we don't yet know if any Dragonstone Obsidian shipments have made it north by the end of Dance, or they're, or they're coming. Loris's coming attack slash non-attack, we still don't know, will play hugely into this. If the castle has fallen, they obviously won't be sending anything to Stannis. But did they get a shipment off before the attack? Did Loras actually take the castle anyway? And like I say, this is something I had to muse on a lot for the castle's book, and while I'm personally convinced Dragonstone has an even larger role to play in the eventual endgame, even if it was this alone, that makes it vital to humanity's survival. And I just worry about that supply chain. It's a long way from Dragonstone to the Wall, on a narrow sea racked with storms and pirates, so it wouldn't be typical for a massive cache of dragonglass to sail north only to be captured and impounded, or even worse, captured and tossed over the side or sunk. I could definitely foresee that happening just as an extra groan moment when the others are coming ever closer. Demons made of snow and ice and cold, says Stannis Baratheon. Their ancient enemy, the only enemy that matters. And I just get a little bit goosebumpy whenever I see Stannis being real invested in all this stuff that most people would call fairy tales. It gets through to me a lot more than whenever Melisandre goes on about it. Another quote from him. The Night Fort is the largest and oldest of the castles on the wall, the king said. That is where I intend to make my seat whilst I fight this war. You will show me this gate. Ah, the Night Fort. I told you we would be discussing it again before long, 
So I encourage you to check back to that final brand chapter in part 12 of Scraps and Scrolls, The Store of Swords, for a much deeper discussion on this castle and its future, and more importantly, the references I made to Joe Magician's YouTube video with San Rixian and Bookshelf Stud, where they cover a heap of Nightfall stuff, including what Stannis is talking about here. For now, Stannis confirms he wants it as his seat, and seeing as he's just come from Dragonstone, he'd probably enjoy the general aura and decor that we had described so brilliantly to us in Bran's final chapter. It sets up a lot of those possible storylines that we reference from Joe Magician's stream, in terms of Selyse heading there, Boa Marsh maybe hunkering down after betraying Jon, there's a whole bunch of ideas, go back and listen to that episode. Obviously Stannis himself isn't going to be there for a long time, but there are a good many theories about how he will save the North from the Boltons, only to be essentially thanked but shown the door by the Stark loyalists, especially if Rickon turns up. I could definitely foresee an annoyed and shunned Stannis returning to the Wall and brooding at the Nightfall. And doesn't that tie into a lot of those Nightfall stories of the Night's King and all those other folks? I could really get on board with Stannis, a dark and grumpy king, living in the dark and gothic castle. Plus, there's that whole theme of the Nightfall being the first castle on the wall like he mentions, so it's fitting that Stannis, who wants to use the wall for its original purpose, will take the castle, specifically constructed for that same purpose, to get the job done. And that all fits brilliantly, and I do hope we get to see it at some point in some version. But there's also the issue of the gate, and I think the grand majority of us would say that that black gate, the crying gate, will indeed only open for a man who's taken the black, a man of the Night's Watch. So I guess Stannis is going to have to keep one or two on staff, which is what I would guess is what he's planning for Sam at this point. So again, that's why I wonder if he's going to get real pissed about Sam being sent south. I can also just foresee Stannis being the only person in Westeros resorting to arguing over crying gate. I can just see him there like stamping his foot and clenching his jaw. But again, that gate just feels important, as does the whole night fort. And it doesn't get more important than Stannis' mission right now. So that's definitely a partnership that I'm after. Before the team closes, Aemon requests to see Lightbringer and all our eyebrows raise collectively. We've just found out Aemon's in on the prophecy stuff, so why does he want to see Lightbringer? Yes, you've got our attention. And to be fair, Sam gives one of the more beautiful descriptions we get of the sword. It glows, said Sam, in a hushed voice, as if it were on fire. There are no flames, but the steel is yellow and red and orange, all flashing and glimmering, like sunshine and water, but prettier. I wish you could see it, Maester. When Sam has finished, Aemon thanks both Stannis and Melisandre, I wonder if he can sense some form of glamouring or has some knowledge of that kind of magic, because as we find once they're out of the room, Eamon has some deep suspicions. It's been quite a while since we've had fake Lightbringer talk. You have to cast your minds all the way back to Davos 1 of A Clash of Kings, when Stannis first claimed Lightbringer, if that's what you want to call it. We had a deep discussion back then about how that ceremony was, it was not too great if you looked at it closely enough, and now Mace Draymond is reminding us of those doubts, because while it might look the part, it does not feel right, as Aemon is perfectly placed to tell us. So, we have to consider the possibility it's a fake again. And if the sword is, what else is? We will finally gain access to Mel's mind the next time we're actually up at the wall, and we'll see just how much of her mind is based on marketing and propaganda, and things looking the real deal, even if they aren't. But a large part of Mel's eventual argument is, does that matter if people believe and thereby follow Stannis? If the ultimate goal is just to unite the people and get them doing the job, who cares? If he comes and saves the wall and rides the north and gets everything sorted for the wall in this garrisoning plan, does it matter if he's true or not? And that's a storyline we'll have to leave the majority of for dance, but we're certainly setting a lot of seeds here, and the timing of this doubt is perfect. We're hearing about Stannis coming and saving the wall, and basically sorting humanity out before saving them. I think you can tell I'm certainly invested in that plan, I want to see more of it, etc, etc. So to hold that wave of these hints about him not being the real deal, and what that might eventually mean, that's just standard classic writing by George, isn't it? I still really strongly support Stannis for these real steps he's trying to make. It's still more than anyone else is doing. And Stannis, to a certain degree, 
doesn't care if he's a Zora high or not. He just sees a job that he's doing and is doing it. I really hope he doesn't eventually fall or get torn down due to not being the right guy or anything like that. But I do worry we will be seeing something of that nature eventually. After that long opening scene, we get to the real point of this chapter. A proactive Sam. Now he knows that Stannis will accept Janos Slint if he has to, and he's going to push the Night's Watch to make a decision there immediately, Sam is really, really getting concerned about what's going to happen. He tries a last-ditch effort to basically get one of the adults to sort it out when he asks Aemon to intervene, but Aemon is forever dedicated to the O's of the Citadel, and so responds like this. It would not be proper for me to be seen to favour one contender over another. I'm not a maester, said Sam. Could I do something? Aemon turned his blind white eyes towards Sam's face and smiled softly. Why, I don't know Samwell. Could you? And you thought it was just Jon Snow getting cool lessons up on the wall. No, 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 far from it. This is as cool teacher moment as they come. And guess what? It works. Sam finally realises no one is going to do this unless he does. So best get on with it. It's a brilliant parallel to what Stannis has realised about the War for the Dawn. And I love the passage of Sam finally taking stock of all that he has achieved and what that means for his ability, his confidence and his self-worth. I am a man of the Night's Watch, he reminded himself as he hurried across the yard. I am. I can do this. There had been a time when he had quaked and squeaked if Lord Mormont so much as looked at him, but that was the old Sam, before the fist of the First Men and Craster's Keep, before the Whites and Cold Hands and the other on his dead horse. He was braver now. Gilly made me braver, he told John. And it was true. It had to be true. Gilly is a huge part of it, let's give her credit. But I really like this all coming internally from Sam, and him really resolving that he can do this. It's a huge moment for his growth and for us who have seen him go through all of this and just in really just one book's worth of arc. It's incredible. And now we get to see exactly what it is he intends to do and just how he is going to step up in the critical moment. Like our last chapter, the key points come in a free. Also like Tyrion's last, it happens so much quicker than you remember it. But Sam's interactions with Cotterpike and Denny's Manister are superb and such fun to look back on. It's a perfect comparison of two different classes that are the same in so many ways. It's a perfect example of how the party line might be that past lives are forgotten once on the wall, but that they are very clearly not, and old grudges and prejudice still survive for decades. And it's also superb for showing us two men who, for all their differences and faults, truly have the health of the Night's Watch as their primary concern. So let's start breaking it down. This is our first decent look at either of these men, and while Cotter Pike will turn out to be the more important dance, they're both still relevant. And George basically sets up two direct caricatures of the two sides of the class debate. Cotter is found playing games and drinking with his buddies in the hall. Denny's is relaxed and lanced with a glass of wine and a steward to show his guests in. Cotter starts with a blunt joke. Denny's is all courtesies and politeness. Cotter is scraggly and pox-scarred. Denny's is noble-looking and has fancy clothes but is also showing his age. If you were asked to build a standard lowborn character and a standard highborn character, you'd come up with something pretty close to these two. And that's just in their introductions. The easy comparisons extend into their abilities and weaknesses. Cotter Pike is a fighter who can stand up for himself in the watch, but he can't read or write and is not one for negotiation. Denny's Manister is a politician who knows how to deal with those in power and truly consider a situation, but he is too old for fighting and no longer commands respect by physical deeds. Cotter Pike relies too much on his maester. Denny's very clearly leaned heavily on the deeds of Corrin Halfhand. And this is where we see the benefits of the Night's Watch democracy and why they are light years ahead of everyone else despite being the oldest. For everyone else, if an heir turns up who's only good at fighting and not thinking, you just have to grin and bear it when they come to inherit. The same is true if you have one who's all books and smooth words but can't swing a sword. But the Night's Watch can choose. They can even make their peace with whatever strength slash weakness combination they want, they can decide what is the greater need in that moment, or they can even find someone who might satisfy both camps, which is exactly what Sam ends up suggesting. Hold on to that thought though, we'll be returning to it in a minute. I find these scenes of two different conversations incredibly funny. 
The way both of these men are dead on about each other is brilliant. Because they're both right. Cotterpike claims Denny's is more interested in telling stories about long-forgotten tourneys than anything else, and that's exactly what Denny's tries to bring up with Sam. And Denny's is right about Cotter being too obtuse and being more concerned with getting a one-up on Stannis than the larger picture. Although, I will say, Denise comes off much worse in terms of his stereotyping. But what I love the most is how they are the exact same person, born in different circumstances. Both of them assume Eamon has sent Sam because they both believe themselves to be ahead in the race. Both of them know the other choices would be a disaster for the watch, especially Dan or Slint. And critically, both of them don't actually want the job, they both just generally think they are the best to fill it. There's a lot of Stannis vibes there as well. Both of them want what is best for the watch, not personal glory. But... They are both stubborn and have let their prejudice overrun them, which is exactly what Sam moves to expose. Because, as luck would have it, Sam is someone stashed away who is the best of both worlds. We've spoken about John being best in a larger context of knowing the Wildlings and the Watchmen and the Northerners, but he also makes up the best of the argument here. He's a skilled fighter who has proven himself both in duels and as a commander in battle. He comes from an ancient line, a line that has always befriended the Watch, and was not only taught by Geo Mormont, Benjamin Stark, Donald Noy, Aemon Targaryen and Corrin Horfan, but spent a lot of time dealing with both Mance and Stannis. He is, in all respects, the perfect candidate. But how to get people to realise that, that's the problem. Well, Sam comes up with a plan pretty much on the fly, and critically realises the one thing that can spur these two into action, using their prejudiced and personal grudges against them. Sam realises that while they might say the other candidates aren't qualified, and might repeat that they don't actually want the honour, blah blah blah, the one thing that can get them to budge is that their rival might get it instead. It's a brilliant moment of analysing two different people by Sam, and really does show how deep those old grudges go. It's still Malister versus Ironborn, it's still upper class versus lower. It's kind of ironic that Maester Raymond, highest born of them all, is actually the best of them for not falling into these traps. John said there could be honour and a lie if it were told for the right reason. Sam said, If you do not choose a Lord Commander tonight, King Stannis means to name Cotter Pike. He said as much to Maester Raymond this morning, after all of you had left. So the setup from last week's chapter pays off. Sam eases his conscience, both in the way of generally lying to these two men because it's for the greater good, but also by invoking that John himself agreed that, thereby relieving the guilt he's doing this all behind John's back. It's not just John whose back he's going behind though. What would Stannis make of this? Obviously, Sam doesn't know that John has been offered Winterfell, but the king's prized peach is being stolen from underneath him and messing with his plans up. That's going to make for grumpy Stannis. But Sam's worrying about what will happen if he's discovered. It's also brilliant for seeing his growth and fully realising what he's been through. They would, what, send me to the wall, rip my entrails out, turn me into a white? Suddenly it all seemed absurd. How could he be so frightened of Cotterbike and Sir Dennis Manister when he had seen a raven eat in Smallpool's face? So Sam comes to his double lie. He's also smart enough to agree with both men that they would be the correct choice and perfectly plays ego and prejudice against each other to completely change the direction of both the Night's Watch and Jon Snow. Lies for the greater good will come back to bite Sam a bit in terms of Jon switching the babies, and we have to have some molasses alums for if Sam had remained at Castle Black because it's clear John really could have done with having him around. But we'll have to take victories where we can take them. All the injustice that Janos Slint and Alice have formed brought with them to the wall has been undone in an afternoon by a loyal friend who is trying to give his bestie the position he has earned. Do what's best for the wall, and I think there's a sense of paying back what all those who've mentored John gave up for him. This is a larger point for John himself, but Sam was with Dior Mormon when he died, and he likely feels some pride in playing so crucial a role setting up the next one, a choice Dior would have been more than happy with. So now we say goodbye to Sam, but it's probably the smallest goodbye we have of any of these final POVs. Not only is he back in the very next chapter, but he's the first non-new POV in A Feast for Crows, so we've got plenty of Sam chat to come. Right, let's keep rolling here, we've got a lot more to go, but we're staying at Castle Black for the moment as we go to John's 
final chapter with John 12. Maybe Sam isn't much of a goodbye, but this chapter sure is. Yes, we do get a quick glimpse of both Castle Black and John in that first Sam Feast chapter like we said earlier, but for all intents and purposes, we're going to be seeing goodbye to both John and Castle Black for an entire book after this chapter. That's pretty huge. John has as much claim to main character status as anyone, and I've already gone on and on about how much I love the second half of his storm arc. It's in contention to be my favourite part of the whole series, and we've definitely had plenty of Castle Black here at the very end to show us how important it is. We've been teased of all these huge changes from Stannis, and now we find out John is going to be in charge, and then you make us wait? Aren't we supposed to be quite concerned about the coming others? Shouldn't we really be focusing up north? Damn, that George is cruel. Yes, we know it. But we'll talk more about the end at the end. For now, the opening is the same as John's last chapter. He's in the yard trying to distract himself from everything that's going on. Before, he was distracting himself from the pain and bitterness over Egret and the fawn Slint Joe. Now, he's distracting himself from that, plus the huge weighty decision placed on him by Stannis. And this time, he has a new training buddy. Iron Emmett, who I always confuse with Steel Shanks Walton for some reason. Is that just me? Do, do let me know if you suffer from that as well. It's the first introduction for someone who's going to be pretty important going forward. He'll take over as the new master at arms of Castle Black for a little while and become one of Jon's best commodities before being chosen as the new commander of Longbarrow, which might turn out to be a mistake. But for now, we learn Emmett is a hell of a fighter who is putting Jon through his paces, and I love that Jon wants to get better by finding people who can beat him. Turns out, Practicing isn't working as a distraction tactic, and Stannis' offer is just looming too large for John to avoid a few bumps and bruises. One such bump is hard enough to knock John into distant memory of the castle in question, of his childhood growing up with a brother and a best friend in Rob. He revisits some of what was surely his happiest memories, and then settles on the one that soured them all. Every morning they are trained together, since they are big enough to walk, snow and stark, spinning and slashing about the wards of Winterfell. That morning, he called it first. I'm Lord of Winterfell, he cried, as he had a hundred times before. Only this time, this time, Robert answered, You can't be Lord of Winterfell. You're bastard-born. My lady mother says you can't ever be Lord of Winterfell. <sighs> Breaks your heart, doesn't it? Yeah. So firstly, I like that Snow and Stark line. That shows exactly what's going through John's mind in terms of this decision. But back to the memory in question, yeah, it is heartbreaking. John is happy. He's playing as any child should, and then suddenly he's told that he isn't the same. He is not equal and this home that he loves so much and has grown up in just as much as Rob has is not his as much as it is his brother's. It's just sad. The more common comparison we could probably make to our lives today is an adopted child being told they aren't really part of the family. It's entirely disconnecting, it shatters self-worth, and we can really see why John ended up with such a complex about being worthy or welcome at Winterfell. I'd like to point out a couple of key notes here. First off, it's amazing that John and Rob were still able to keep and grow a loving relationship, friendship, brotherhood, whatever, even after the introduction of this whole new element that neither of them are even aware of when growing up. And don't forget, there's a big chunk of time where it is just those two together at Winterfell before any more kids, and specifically any more boys, start turning up. But more importantly, this was an incredibly bad choice by Catelyn. And we all know I'm a big old Catelyn fan, and I surely am, but that doesn't mean I can't appreciate her flaws. Clearly, her entire attitude towards Jon is a huge flaw, but even in this specific context, Sharing her views with Rob and influencing him with her views and prejudice, huge no-no. That's manipulation. Rob doesn't need to be told that, especially not at this age. He doesn't need that tint added to his glasses. All it does is hurt John, confuse Rob. Completely unfair. I can imagine her reasoning, don't want to get too close, Rob has to realise he's going to inherit, but that's bullshit. That's a weak argument where she is projecting her own worries and insecurities to her son. Rob doesn't need to know in this specific situation, and if the idea was to prize them apart, well it clearly didn't work. 
Clearly, it's all a huge source of pain for John, and instead of building up, it just kind of bursts all at once. I had forgotten that. John could taste blood in his mouth from the blow he'd taken. In the end, Halder and Horse had to pull him away from Iron Emmet, one man on either arm. So we've been noting John's animal urges and aggression coming out more and more since Egret's death, and this is probably the largest one yet, he doesn't even realise what he's doing. Imagine what he's going to be like after spending a little time inside a wolf's actual body. Hmm. The emotion and hurt that comes with the memory acts out in physical anger, with John noting just how angry he is at that moment. A large part of that is just the stress that's built up all through this book and particularly at the end with Egret. But a lot is due to this huge decision weighing down on him. But also, so much is to do with Catelyn and the deep pain of childhood. It was not Lord Eddard's face he saw floating before him though. It was Lady Catelyn's, with her deep blue eyes and hard cold mouth. She looked a bit like Stannis. Who are you, that look had always seemed to say. This is not your place. Why are you here? While the focus is clearly on the emotion of the moment and more of that unwelcomeness feeling, with George clearly trying to steer the reader into thinking John might accept the offer so he can avenge this childhood pain, I can't help but note the imagery. Blue eyes, like a white. Cold mouth. Well, she's no longer a corpse, but who can say if her blood is warm? Symbolically, it's definitely not. And she looks like Stannis. Well, we've already discussed how a fair few believe that Stannis might become a white or another, or the Night's King or something along those lines. And we've just been thinking about the Night Fort. So considering what we're going to discuss at the end of this episode today, yeah, that's a pretty poignant quote there. John goes on a mini tour of Castle Black, again trying to escape his choice, but he can't. Winterfell is too powerful. Everything he sees reminds him of his home, and home makes him think of being unwelcome and what everybody would want of him. Would Ned and Rob want him to rebuild what Ramsay burnt? What did the Stone King say? What was the will of the old gods? We should note here, he still hasn't addressed what it is he wants. And my own bursts when hearing Eddard describe it as the heart of Winterfell, because it so, so is. And that brings more complication. Ned might want Winterfell restored, but to do that, John would have to destroy the heart and soul of Winterfell, something Ned clearly wouldn't want. Like in his last chapter, John simply can't comprehend doing that. Although, note, we're establishing the theme of John having to kill something to save it. Hmm, that might come up, maybe. John's mulling on this is interrupted by Fawn and Marsh and Powell's clearly plotting, as John says, and perhaps showing their predisposition for betrayal. But John merely walks out and leaves them to it. It goes to show he's not really aware of what's actually happening at Castle Black. He's too wrapped up in his own stuff. He's just removed himself entirely, he doesn't want any part of it. That's why Sam is so skilled and valuable, because he is aware of the mood and current and, and is doing something about it. If he hadn't, John would have found himself serving under Lord Commander Janos Slint and more than likely would have been executed. It goes to show what a good pairing John and Sam would make. And we know full well how helpful it would have been in dance to have someone who could sense the mood and observe underlying plots. Yeah, that really would have been very handy, especially at the end. Unfortunately, that's the last alarms again. It's only as John continues his tour that he gives a thought to the political situation they're all in. And even then, it is only as an addendum to his decision and whether that should have any sway. But the main point is John walking through his recent history, reflecting on all those he has lost or fought beside in this very spot. Because gaining Winterfell wouldn't just be gaining Winterfell, it would also be leaving Castle Black, the place he fought so hard to get back to, and then so hard to defend. So, shouldn't he want to stay? But then look at these memories, full of loss. Shouldn't he want to leave? And imagine Janos doesn't kill him. Can he actually stand to stay around and see what Slint does to the Night's Watch? And just to throw it in here, because it kind of fits anywhere, Remember, John is deliberating over all of this without the knowledge Rob did name him heir to Winterfell, or, you know, we assume. Imagine what a weight off his shoulders that would have been. Maybe that will come up in the future. But anyway, John's brooding takes him beneath the wall he saved and back out into the wild, into the region he recently saw the wildling dreams die, where he first met Egret, where their beloved cave lies miles and miles away, and he finds himself sitting away from the carnage of battle, alone, save for the trees, 
and tries one final way up when he finally gets to what he himself might want. To stay at the wall almost certainly means death. To go home might mean Val as a wife, a son of his own, a true-born son, who could grow up with gillies and manses. He could truly recreate what was stolen from Winterfell. And what follows is a beautiful piece of writing. I remember it absolutely flooring me during my most recent read-through, and I wish I could read it all here for you right now, but I'll be select. First comes John's great admittance. He wanted it, John Newland. He wanted it as much as he ever wanted anything. I've always wanted it, he thought guiltily. May the gods forgive me. It was a hunger inside him, sharp as a dragonglass blade. Yes, John dares to want an actual life for himself. How dare he? But as soon as he thinks that, he has another thought. A hunger. He could feel it. It was food he needed. Prey. A red deer that stank of fear, or a great elk, proud and defiant. He needed to kill and fill his belly with fresh meat and hot dark blood. His mouth began to water with the thought. And... Just to interject here, you are a damn fool if you think I'm not reading this bit out. It was a long moment before he understood what was happening. When he did, he bolted to his feet. Ghost? He turned towards the wood. And there he came, padding silently out of the green dusk, the breath coming warm and white from his open jaws. Ghost! he shouted, and the direwolf broke into a run. He was leaner than he had been, but bigger as well, and the only sound he made was the soft crunch of dead leaves beneath his paws. When he reached John, he leapt, and they wrestled amidst brown grass and long shadows, as the stars came out above them. I have no problem admitting to you people that I get incredibly emotional about animal stuff, sometimes more than I do about human stuff. I'm a doggy owner too. So this reunion, yeah, it hits me square in the chest, and I think you might have been able to tell in my rereading there. I was smiling reading that bit out to you. They even have the Disney slow-mo run towards each other. Is this my favourite reunion in A Song of Ice and Fire? My friends, it's not even close. Most of the reunions we get are terrible and painful, and we get far more goodbyes than anything else. The majority of this book is bad news. Not here. This is the happiest moment we've had in an age. Ghosty has returned to us, yes. And whether he is oddly powered or not, that's a hell of a journey he just made. Now there's your movie, yeah. Sappy or not, I completely believe it was his desire to get back to John that got him here. And yeah, I think you can tell. I'm just happy he's back. I love this moment. It is one of my favourites. Another quote. And here alone of all the diewalls is white. Six pups they'd found in the late summer snows. Him and Rob. Five that are grey and black and brown for the five Starks, and one white, as white as snow. He had his answer then. Damn, what a paragraph. John is aware of all the benefits, even aware of how much he wants it all, but Ghost returns to him at the most opportune time and reminds John of his true nature. There's a capital S on snow when you read that, and it's damn important. They are the outliers, him and Ghost together, and Ghost is a symbol of the true north, just as actual snow is, just as the weirwoods are, which his eyes look like. He belongs to the old gods, just like John, and John made an oath to those old gods, one he intends to keep. But I think more than that, he will not destroy the heart tree of Winterfell, the one that, like I say, so looks like Ghost. He will not turn his back on the old gods and his true nature. He will not do that to Ghost, the living embodiment of the connection between Starks and the true nature of the North, and him having the most natural ever warging is a big part of this as well. He will not betray the memory of Ned and Rob and Aya and even Bran and Rickon and Sansa too. He won't do that to Benjamin Stark. It doesn't matter how many incentives you throw at him and all the other wonderful things he's dreamt of coming true, he is Jon Snow, and this is his ghost. They are of the North, and they have a duty to do. And this is another thread I could just talk and talk and talk about. I can't do it justice how much I love not just the choice itself, but how it came about. Ghost reminding Jon of who he truly is within himself when you strip away all this political stuff and what Eagle would want or what Stannis would want or whoever. This is about Jon and Jon's relationship to his family. Would we love John to have that happy life at Winterfell? Sure. Although we should point out that is absolutely not what he would actually be signing up for, initially at least. 
but it's so gratifying and wonderful to see him choose a more overall and deeper sense of happiness and loyalty to his family and what they treasured. And again, the way it comes through Ghost. Just floored me before, floors me now. Top marks. The parallels to Danny in this situation are numerous. We spoke about this during her last chapter, but John also had the option to go home and seek his birthright in the same way that Danny wants the Iron Throne. But he chooses duty and helping people instead of gratification, just as Danny did by considering her freedman and the city of Marine. And even though he doesn't reference it here, John is aware of the larger war out there and that he can play a part in that. That was exactly what Stannis intended by giving him Winterfell, but you can see why John would feel like going home and going back to Winterfell feels like a retreat while leaving his brothers to face the threat alone. And bear in mind, John makes this choice still thinking it might mean his immediate death, but he does it anyway. And why? When it comes down to it and we move past Ghost and his siblings and everything else? Because that's what Eddard Sark would have done. But our chapter doesn't end there. We've still got a real important scene to go, and even as he's re-entering Castle Black, we can see John's entire mood has changed. He's running, for a start, this guy was on a crutch a couple of weeks ago. He's confident, he's moving with purpose again, because the picture of John is complete now. He's finally whole after so long with a piece of his soul missing, and it's that image we see as he enters the final scene. Firstly, I love that Stannis has essentially put the Night's Watch under siege until they make a decision. It's such a hilariously Stannis thing to do, and certainly makes sense considering his history. He knows what a motivating factor hunger can be. John finds the Night's Watch in chaos, with Janos insisting on getting his turncloak agenda heard and everyone else just shouting out pure noise. It's an easily imaginable scene from a film when Pip whistles and everyone turns to see John silhouetted at the back there, a much-grown ghost at his side. I love, love, love imagining the feeling that Janos and Alyssa must have had when they saw Ghost. Especially Janos, who has never seen one before. A lot of them there haven't. To be fair, Slint rallies pretty well in terms of getting words out, but he also sounds like a lunatic. I say hang him for a turncloak and a warg, along with his friend Matt's Raider. Lord Commander, I will not have it. I will not suffer it. This, especially, turns off the brothers from Slint completely. But it's Alice of Vaughan who calls for an end to the arguing, likely because he knows Slint is going to lose himself votes by the minute. The quicker they can do this thing, the better, especially when he has the final kicker of Offal Yarwick to maybe put his friend over the edge. Hilariously, Offal goes the other way. Even he is tired of Slint, and it's not exactly a ring endorsement for John, but it's a hell of a lot more than he's giving anyone else. Janos Slint had turned from red to purple, John saw, but Sir Alice of Fawn had gone pale. I think we're all pretty big fans of that line, aren't we? The momentum sweeps along here, completely unstoppable. Is this shouting for a black kettle an indication that a kettle black might end up on the wall? Maybe all three of them? Could be. In fact, the only thing that can stop the brothers now is the sudden reappearance of Mormont's Raven in a moment of amazing timing. As much as I like Fawn looking like an absolute fool, and Slint's defeat being a complete and utter beatdown, I have to confess I wasn't the biggest fan of this edition. I wanted to see John win on his own without the parlour trick, because you can really see a lot of people genuinely think John is a great idea once Sam has brought up the suggestion. They just needed a push, and Sam provided. Now I don't talk about the ravens and blood raven theories all that much because there's just so much we don't know yet, but it's pretty unavoidable here. You can see why Fawn thinks Sam set this up. It looks pretty damn scripted. And maybe it is. Theories abound about Blood Raven trying to make sure John becomes Lord Commander, maybe because he wants John at the wall, maybe to ensure John doesn't go to Winterfell and burn the Heart Tree, maybe because he wants to keep an eye on a secret Targaryen. Who can say? I, I won't deliberate anymore. The idea of a high school movie ending continues. Everyone is suddenly slapping on the back and congratulating him. It turns out John never really had to make a choice at all, although we know it's super important that he did personally. We should have a shout out for Cotter Pike and Dennis Manister, both taking it with grace and marking them out to be pretty cool guys. But the best ending is John leaving the party, if you want to call it that, to sneak off with his original bunch of friends for a quick drink. 
They were once all green boys, completely new on the wall, and now look at them. There's one hell of a graduation. Sam also gets his due, and I think John knows he needs to appreciate this moment because it's all changed from here, for all of them. And we get one of the best ending lines in the book. The wall was his, the night was dark, and he had a king to face. Yeah. Goodbye, John. It's a long wait, but it will pay off when we return to you. And since we're leaving Castle Black there and won't be returning, it seems like a pretty good place for a halfway point, a halfway shout-out. It's been a bit different this week because we've still got a lot to go. This podcast's already running long and nothing really jumped out to me this week as something that I should be mentioning. So I think what would be more appropriate is, seeing as it's the ending here in the last episode of Storm of Swords, we give a shout-out to the main people themselves, Aziz and the Shea of History of Westeros for Valor Aurelius is obviously their baby. We wouldn't have scraps and scrolls without them coming up with this idea and asking me to work for them on it. Probably wouldn't have a podcast at all if they hadn't originally asked me to work with them like three or so years ago now because I wouldn't have gained that confidence and got all this not only skills of research and constructing essays and all this stuff and helping them write podcast scripts. Everything that we've done together over the few, past few years, it's been quite a lot. It's uh, quite the ride. And even before that, they were the ones that inspired me to get involved with the fandom and writing stuff and talking stuff they were the first ones i really came across you know, right back in the old days of discovering a song of motion fire they were my first steps into the fandom there radio restos as well so i'm hoping you will join me just in saying thank you not just for valor Aurelis and these past three books but for everything they're putting out i still don't know how they do it i've looked behind the curtain and i still can't see how they're pumping out this much quality content nearly daily every time i go on youtube there's some new video there's some new podcast there's something new that these guys are being up to and i know personally how hard they both work and do all this stuff you guys they really only see the tip of the iceberg and it's a hell of a tip on an iceberg don't get me wrong but there's so much more that goes into it on the writing and preparing and everything and couldn't ask for two better people to work with so i'm very lucky i'm hoping you will join me and a big thank you as well we'll leave it there thank you guys thank you always Okay, let's get back to it. Like I say, there's still plenty to go. I should give a larger thank you to the history of Westeros, but hopefully we can continue doing that by just doing a good job and giving them our support. Let's get back to it now as we return to a long-awaited location we haven't seen for quite a while, the Vale. Yes, it's Sansa 7. We're here. Chapter 80. The last true POV chapter of the best book of the series. No offence to merit, you've still to come. I think it's really fitting that the focus of said last chapter is, essentially, the forgotten girl. No one knows where Sansa is, the world is already starting to move on without her. After spending so long in the centre of Westeros, she's now in the place that has kept itself on the perimeter the most out of everyone during this national war. Even Dawn, of all places, has been more involved in the Vale. We've seen how events in King's Landing have wrapped up, we just saw the huge change at Castle Black, we've already covered Marine, so who cares about little backwater Eerie, when nothing has happened since Tyrion's trial by combat ages ago. Well, as it turns out, we should all be concerned, because there's a big change coming here too, with some reveals that stretch way, way further than the walls of the Eyrie, both in terms of space and time. As reveals go, they really don't get much bigger. We also get a huge chapter for Sansa personally. We've already discussed how the idea of Sansa separating from her Stark identity is fairly overblown overall, and she really starts reconnecting with her family much earlier than some would have you think. Still, you can't deny this chapter is a huge scene for such, and in the final bit of chapter sequencing for the book, we have all that coming after John has just searched for his own family feelings, especially in relation to the home they both grew up in. John has just decided to be true to himself. Sansa is actively making sure she's becoming someone different. While Sansa dreams of home, and Aya also, which is nice, she knows full well that she is not there. 
Not only is the eerie physically different, it feels different, and the first part of this chapter goes to show what the long-term rule of Lysa, plus the coming winter, has done to the place, by which I mean empty it. In the castle's book, I compared the eerie to how we see it in Catelyn's POV in comparison to Sansa, and we should really point out here that this is yet another part of that theme of Catelyn's daughters following in her physical footsteps. Aya's last chapter was in the inn where Catelyn scored the first victory of the war by capturing Tyrion. Now Sansa stands where she lost him. Considering how both girls are following their mother in terms of personality as well, Sansa to the living Catelyn, Aya for Lady Stoneheart and her revenge, I really like this idea of Sansa being in a place where her mother was, as well as the cautionary tale of what Catelyn could have become with different circumstances in Lysa. And with Sansa, this is a double whammy, because her father also spent some of his most important formative years here as well. But anyway, the difference between Catelyn at the Eyrie and Sansa at the Eyrie is what we're talking about. The Eyrie is obviously never going to match Winterfell for warmth or the Red Keep for activity, but now it's completely lacking in both. There was at least a court of sorts when Catelyn visited, there was large groups of people and points of interest. But now under Lysa, it is an empty, cold place that's been hollowed to its bare bones. No one who doesn't need to be there is there. And we already learned Littlefinger's hopped it away to go visiting with the Vale Lords. What it tells us is that Lysa has turned those same Vale Lords against her. What it tells us is that Lysa has really turned those same Vale Lords against her, with either her refusal to go to war or refusal to engage in any more betrothal games. Her oddities and insistence on withdrawing, as much as humanly possible, has turned a great castle that, okay, to be fair, is always kind of quiet due to its location, into a shell of its former self. Not good for Lysa, not good for Sweet Rowan, not good for the Vale. And not good for Sansa either. Yes, it is good being away from the hustle and bustle of the Red Keep where she was forever under watch, but now she's away from anyone really her own age, anyone who actually cares for her, and is now the sole interest of creeps like Marillion. Before Sansa gets up, we get some crucial setup for the political situation in the Vale and who the players are going to be later in Feast. Lysa has already estranged a good many of her suitors and lords. I suppose when Jon Arryn originally died, she was very interesting as the new option on the block. That was already gone before, but they are all now even more annoyed at her marriage to Peter Baelish. With good reason. It is a pretty big leap from the rocks out on the fingers to being Lord Protector of the Vale, and the guy has been living elsewhere for the past five years or so as well. Plus, he's not the kind of guy a lot of lords would like. It's important to establish this early, even if Sansa isn't going to interact with the outside world all that much in this chapter. But now we know the Royces are leading the charge, so to speak, we know a good many of the other lords are being resistant as well. We even find out the clansmen are active and bold, as I heard in her chapter. Again, Sansa is free from all those worries at the moment, but she will begin learning and honing her skills amongst them before, assumedly, getting to really use them down in the Vale. More than the political, it is Sansa realising that all this wasn't on the brochure. First, she was promised to go home. Now, she's been promised finding a home in the Eyrie, and neither are true. This is not the escape she had been hoping for. Let's get our first quote of the chapter here. Snow was falling on the Eyrie. Ah yes, the short and simple line that really makes us take pause. It's snowing as far south as the Eyrie now. Hmm. Granted, it's very high up, but still, this is obviously a progression, and we've passed another checkpoint of the overall story, as well as tying back to the very beginning of the book, when it suddenly started snowing on Chet. With winter truly coming, it also brilliantly frames this as the end of the book. This is how we wave goodbye to the events of summer and autumn. We are ever closer to the true winter. And of course, we all know we're going to see some major influence from the wintry weather back in the north and here in the Erie, but it means that end point is coming ever closer. It's good timing given how much activity we've just seen in terms of the wall being prepared for just that. It's also the kickstart for Sansa to really miss her home and her people. Jon saw the snow-white fur of ghosts to remind him of himself. Sansa is now seeing snow for the first time since leaving home, and she's just been dreaming of that home. Is it the aura of the snow that made Sansa dream that dream, or mere coincidence? Snow means Starks. Sansa is still a Stark, 
even if she does say the name is Elaine. Sansa herself thinks of some of this as the snow sends her down memory lane, again like the John chapter, to days of innocent childhood playing, but also to the day those all stopped when she left Winterfell, her home and half her family, forever. And again like John, she remembers the flakes melting in Rob's hair. It hurt to remember how happy she had been that morning. I thought my song was beginning that day, but it was almost done. Oh, that's a nasty one. The pain of remembering might be why Sansa has never looked at this so directly. Obviously, she knows it was a mistake to leave Winterfell, but really looking back and thinking on it is a different matter. It hurts to realise just how much she loved what she's lost. So instead of doing that, Sansa gets up, she gets dressed, and manages to find some alone time, some very rare alone time. She manages to get herself down to the same garden where Bronn fought Savardis. She even notices this is actually that Bronn toppled over. And you know I'm enjoying this look inside one of the great castles, oh yes, I like the details. And she discovers a scene of pure beauty and tranquility. Concerning the burning of slave masters, the slaughters at weddings, the war at the wall, down in the mud at the riverlands, this is quite the ending for a book that's pretty chaotic and pretty terrible. Almost like we're having a time out at the end here. When she opened the door to the garden, it was so lovely that she held her breath, unwilling to disturb such perfect beauty. The snow drifted down and down, all in ghostly silence, and they thick and unbroken on the ground. All colour had fled the world outside. It was a place of whites and blacks and greys. White towers and white snow and white statues. Black shadows and black trees. A pure world, Sansa thought. I do not belong here. So Sansa states she doesn't belong here, and Lysa says the same thing later on. Pretty interesting that wording is used as it's so similar to John. John who feels that way because of being a bastard. And what is it that Sansa is now supposed to be? Hmm. Never quote. She could feel the snow on her lashes, taste it on her lips. It was the taste of Winterfell, the taste of innocence, the taste of dreams. What a beautiful moment those two quotes are conjuring up here. Sansa's being able to delight in nature and finally feel something. And again, she's relating it all back to her beloved home. I really like when Sansa notes this garden is supposed to be a godswood. So it's supposed to be a place she'd have a true connection with, in the same way she's supposed to have a direwolf, because she's a Stark. There might be something missing, sure, but she's trying her best. Maybe she should also take it as a sign she's supposed to be somewhere else, but I think she's already hit on that point. Now she moves beyond thought, relying on memory and instincts alone as she begins to build. But first another memory. Her sister came back to see if she was hurt. When she said she wasn't, Aya hit her in the face of another snowball. But Sansa grabbed her leg and pulled her down, and was rubbing snow in her hair when Jory came along and pulled them apart laughing. Chapter sequencing alert. With John, we had stories of him and Rob. Now we're getting all the younger children together, and especially this paragraph on Aya and Sansa, probably having the most fun we've ever heard of between them. This was not the sisterhood we got to see on page, so it's a real heart hurter to imagine what they were like for the majority of their time at Winterfell as children. This all ties into the idea of framing this as the end of a major part of the story. Remember, this was written as the final main POV chapter before the five-year gap. This is essentially our goodbye to the Starks as children, so these memories are used to size up exactly what this war has done to them all, all the innocence that has been stolen, all the opportunities to roll around in the snow and laugh, and how it's all been completely taken away. We can see how vastly this change journeyed from our first chapters in that loving Winterfell setting to the here and now. You would think after her imprisonment, Sansa would be completely used to loneliness and missing her family, but this scene shows that she's not. But what can she do to counteract that? She can't build her siblings out of snow, but she could build another key member of her family. The snow fell and the castle rose. Two walls ankle high, the inner taller than the outer. Towers and turrets, keeps and stairs, a round kitchen, a square armoury, the stables along the inside of the west wall. It was only a castle when she began, but before long, Sansa knew it was Winterfell. Again, beautiful. This whole beginning part of this chapter is just beautiful in its scenery and imagery. There is something wonderfully childlike and simple about this exercise, 
is Sansa the Child actually being allowed to be Sansa the Child for once, and now act in a certain way without having to act a certain way for someone else? They come calling, the maester and the servants and her aunt, but none disturb the child building her home in the snow. And then again, this is also a creation of Sansa the adult. Look at the detail in this thing, look at the creativity. This isn't just a rough outline, it's got bulwarks and crenellations for crying out loud. Sansa should probably write a castle's book, I think it might do better than mine. So we've got all the themes of youth and innocence, the pureness of the snow, the white of it. That's just the symbolism. We've also got the act of a child having a wonderful moment to herself. The whole thing, like I say, is just beautiful, a beautiful connection back to her much-missed family. So what do we need to counteract such a picture? We need the snake to Sansa's Eve, of course, the most corruptive and corrosive figure in all of Westeros. Yes, Peter Baelish enters the scene. Groan, sigh, curse and swear. He kicks off by asking, May I come into your castle, my lady? And that should be a pretty clear announcement of how awful he is. Yes, I'm already getting annoyed. We've just had this wonderful scene of Sansa in this beautiful description of the garden, her really connecting with nature and her memories, and look at this guy coming in making innuendos. I don't think I need to explain the insinuations of such a sentence, but it also links back to what we said last time about him masking his abuse in the guise of games. It just so happens he catches Sansa at a prime time for thinking about those old games as she's been remembering Winterfell with her youth and all those games. And I, as mentioned, come into my castle specifically as a game she remembers playing, so I think we can assume Sansa did also. The question masks Littlefinger's intentions behind a wall of charm and manners, also important to Sansa's psyche, and allows him to circle ever closer like the shark he is. I like that Sansa jumps to Winterfell's defence when Littlefinger dares to speak against her home. It's no surprise he viewed Winterfell in the manner he describes. He would have pictured it as your classic evil castle with lightning flashing behind it. It plays directly into his piece of the classic hero story we spoke of so much back in Game of Thrones. He was the poor, wounded hero whose love was stolen from him and taken away to a dark, cold place in the frozen north. He probably spent years dreaming of Spring and Catelyn and taking her home. This isn't quite that, it's just the next best thing. And trust Baelish to come and change this pure moment for Sansa's sense of self into a bonding session between the two instead, making her feel that they are ever closer because he's being so helpful and gentlemanly and has all these clever solutions she didn't think of. Is, again, that circle ever tightening and an effort to integrate himself to her yet again. And you'll note the increased physicality is back, just like last time. On this occasion, he's touching her face for no practical reason and Sansa even thinks, I don't understand, as he does so. He goes on with the helping until Sansa's wonderful morning fills her with enough bravery to challenge his lie about going home. She wondered where this courage had come from, to speak to him so frankly. From Winterfell, she thought, I am stronger within the walls of Winterfell. No argument here, Sansa, and we look forward to seeing the real version. But then we fall off a cliff higher than the giant's lance, and this slow, gentle, beautiful chapter that's supposed to be this calm roundup after the chaotic book changes completely into a terrible, disgusting crime as Peter forces a kiss on poor Sansa. And bear for a warning, this is tough to read and to hear, so you might want to mute this bit. Sansa tried to step back, but he pulled her into his arms, and suddenly he was kissing her. Feebly, she tried to squirm, but only succeeded in pressing herself more tightly against him. His mouth was on hers, swallowing her words. He tasted of mint. For half a, house, for half a heartbeat, she yielded to his kiss, before she turned her face away and wrenched free. What are you doing? So if you want to dig out some victory, it's that Sansa is able to get herself free, but it's not really much of a victory. The force with which the kiss is taken... It's tough, yeah. Like I said, tough to read, tough to hear. And even moving beyond that huge part of the issue, her wonderful experience of building the castles is now completely corrupted by his actions. 
Paul Sansa is not safe once again, because what difference is there between Baelish and Marillion other than Peter having far more tact about hiding his own offence? Sansa makes the same comparison herself a moment later. She is supposed to be able to trust this man to feel safe around him. All she wanted to do was build a castle in the snow. And now there's this. Sickening is not strong enough a word. It's also a massive gamble on Baelish's part. This isn't in a cabin, or on a ship, or in a private room somewhere. This is an open garden, within the castle that Lysa can look down on at any moment. The eerie might be quiet, but it ain't that quiet, and Baelish clearly knows how Lysa will react to such. Some might say this is him trying to incite an incident between aunt and niece, so he has some cause to get rid of Lysa, but even Baelish can't plan for the things to shake out as neatly as they did for such an opportunity. No, this isn't plotting, this is him being unable to resist the hero story he's been telling himself for decades. He spent all this time planning, resisting, moving inch by inch on a plan the size of a marathon, and he can't resist when he looks at Sansa because she looks so much like Catelyn in the moment. Young, beautiful, surrounded by snow, that's the Catelyn that Peter would have been picturing during that long recovery from his wounds back at the fingers while picturing his beloved up in the north. He's been waiting and working for so long, and he's finally got his prize in front of him. Can I just relax for a moment and reap the rewards? Blech sickening again. I suppose a large factor might be he's already tiring of Lysa and there can be no doubt he's constantly comparing the two women's physiques all the time because that just sounds like him again. But either way as well as a moment of cruelty it's also a moment of weakness. This almost gets Sansa killed. It could have got her all the way. It could have almost got him killed as well. Everything could have fallen down in this one urge. Yet he's not even the one to stop it. Peter please. Her voice sounded so weak. Please. Castle! The voice was loud, shrill and childish. Littlefinger turned away from her. Lord Robert, he sketched a bow. His glass across our palm to hear Sansa having to weakly beg before sweet Robin, of all people, comes to save her. I don't think we want to delve too deeply into what might have been if he hadn't come at this moment. This is also an important reintroduction for us. We've not seen Robert for a long time. All the other children we've met in the series have changed plenty since then. But is he? As it turns out, no. He's actually gone much worse thanks to Lysa's own issues and mothering techniques. It's important to establish his temperament and growing sickness for the Elaine storyline in Feast. We also see how socially unskilled he is straight away when he begins knocking down Snow Winterfell. And yes, some of Sweet Robin's issues come from the fact that he's a child. But remember, Bran was eight when we first met him, whereas Sweet Robin seems closer to free of Rickon in terms of development. Swinging the doll by her legs, he knocked the top off one gatehouse tower and then the other. It was more than Santa could stand. Robert stopped that. Instead, he swung the doll again, and a foot of wall exploded. She grabbed for his hand, but caught the doll instead. There was a loud ripping sound as the thin cloth tore. Suddenly, she heard the doll's head. Robert had the legs and bodies, and the rag and sawdust stuffing was spilling into the snow. Again, Sansa has to leap to Winterfell's defence, and you really feel for her, with her careful creation being partially destroyed by some cruel, selfish, spoilt little boy. There's a lot to unpack here in terms of foreshadowing and prophecy. First is the connection we mentioned from Arya's time in the foothills, she tore the doll from the farm girl and Sansa is doing that now to a noble lord. So that's a nice little reflection there. There's the idea that a real giant will one day attack the edge of Winterfell and we certainly can't say for sure that won't happen whether it be a white giant or a real one. Giants supposedly help build Winterfell so it may well be that another tries to destroy it. But the prevailing thread is one heard by Arya from the Ghost of High Heart about a maid we know to be Sansa slaying a giant made in the castle of snow. As I mentioned back then while this incident fits the criteria perfectly I really doubt it makes a big enough wave in the cosmic sea for the ghost of High Heart to be having dreams about it. No, I maintain that the giant the ghost refers to is Littlefinger, because George would enjoy a short man with a little nickname being seen as the giant he is in terms of influence, as we're about to learn shortly. 
and the castle of snow will be Winterfell, as winter will leave it such. But you can even make the argument that Eerie will be the place this happens. But I prefer Winterfell for a whole bunch of thematic reasons I've spoken about before in various places, so I think this is more a supporting act to the ghost's dreams than its conclusion. Sansa has already had a run-in with giants in the Castle of Snow, one where Littlefinger exerts his control over her. Next time, I expect it to be the opposite. Back in the present, we discover young Robert's sickness and these episodes he's been having so often that everyone is well drilled in how to deal with them. And however unpleasant the child is, you have to feel for him, especially when he's subjected to constant leechings, as well as now gaining this reputation as sick and weakly, and therefore worthless. For Sansa, her perfect scene has been ruined. Her snow home is in tatters, the beautiful snow itself has stopped, and yet it's got colder somehow. It's like someone has taken the filter off. The emotion of such is so fierce, she ends up smashing this doll's head down onto a stick outside Snow Winterfell's walls. If the tales be true, that's not the first giant to end up with his head on Winterfell's walls. Those were only stories, she said, and left him there. I'd really, really like to believe this is Sansa saying, maybe those were stories, but one day this would be reality for you. One can hope. Sansa's frustrations return when she's alone in her room, and a desire for a more lively court and some friends of her own age allows for more set of future storylines when we hear about Miranda Royce and Maya Stone. But what stands out more is the effect building Winterfell has had on Sansa. Her confidence is back, she feels some self-worth, and absolutely critical considering what happens at the end of the chapter and during Feast, Sansa wants to get away from Robin, Marillion and Peter. That is so important to remember considering the Stockholm Syndrome symptoms she'll soon semi-display. She did not want those kisses. She wasn't a beggar, no matter what her aunt said. She was 13, a woman flowered and wed, the heir to Winterfell. And then, in a minute, if Lady Lysa knew that, surely she'd send her away, away from Robert's pouts and shakes and runny eyes, away from Marillion's lingering looks, away from Peter's kisses. I will tell her, I will. It's wonderful to see Sansa feeling so fierce and confident, but it's completely understandable. My Marillion robs her of that. It's that feeling of compromised safety that Sansa has to suffer basically every two minutes in her life. Although the description of how Marillion has made himself hated by not looking at the big picture and only considering what gifts he can gain is good reading. No doubt Peter Baelish is aware of the mood towards Marillion and has considered how he can use that. Sansa's confidence continues to trickle away as she approaches her meeting with Lysa, and for good reason. A bar being slid against the door, Marillion lingering to play so the guards don't hear. Lysa has this all set up with intent. She intends to abuse Sansa, and the poor girl is aware of what's coming. We finally return to the beautiful High Hall, but this is just as empty as the rest of the castle. It feels like there is something fake about it, that this is not truly Lysa's place any more than it's Sansa's. Anyway, we have the weirwood chair and the weirwood door. Two for one. Yes, yes, weirwood that can't connect to the soil, but still, if it turns out Bran, or someone else, can see through disconnected weirwood, that is pretty huge for this moment and a hundred more. Lysa does not mince words when she finally comes face to face with her niece, and it's not long before we see how bad her mental state has become. In truth, she's likely been this bad for a while now, but I think the recent win of finally snagging Peter has actually made her worse. Consider, she has had one goal, one obsession, that her entire world has revolved around since she was a girl. For almost her entire life, every action taken has been one she believes will get her closer to Peter Baelish. So now she has him, her nerves are completely shot for fear that she could lose him again. It's a dog chasing a car scenario, she doesn't actually know what to do. Before she was always working, always gaining, day by day, ever closer to having him. Now she's there, the only alternative is to lose him, in her mind. And that's what we see with Sansa. Any tiniest hint of a possibility of losing Peter is akin to a meteorite appearing above Lysa's head. It is the only thing that matters and must be dealt with. It is obvious how far she is detached from reality, and the ever-increasing loneliness of a withdrawal has a lot to do with that. Because she's not even considering the rather clear fact that Sansa obviously did not initiate this kiss and did not want it. 
Her detachment is such that she believes everyone wants Peter as much as she does, because he is the centre of the universe and everyone must clearly want to steal her long-awaited prize. We knew Lysa wasn't the strongest mentally, but this is a different level. Or do you take me for a fool? You do, don't you? You take me for a fool. Yes, I see that now. I am not a fool. You think you can have any man you want because you're young and beautiful. Don't think I haven't seen the looks you give Marillion. I know everything that happens in the Eerie, little lady, and I have known your like before too. Sounds like Janos Slint there a bit. Again, Lysa's psyche is so fragile, the only reality she can allow is one where all other women are tempting witches, willing to sell themselves to any man. She's even convinced herself that's what all of Marillion's victims were. She fears the young and the beautiful, because deep down, she knows she cannot compete with that, as she knew she couldn't compete with Catelyn. In a moment, Sansa will compare Lysa with Cersei, and that certainly fits with the young and the beautiful thing. This might even be an image of Cersei to come for all we know, but it's the Catelyn comparisons that are more apt. They all tried to take him from me. My lord father, my husband, your mother, Catelyn most of all. As much as Peter looks at Sansa and sees Catelyn, so does Lysa, and all those insecurities from her youth come rushing back. She is once again convinced they mean to take her prized possession, and to be honest, I think even if Peter had done nothing, it's all but guaranteed Lysa would have sought out some act she believed to be Sansa making a move, and we would have ended up with this situation regardless. Lysa is just so paranoid and worried, and so, so jealous of all that Cat was, it was inevitable. It really does make Peter and Lysa look like the perfect couple considering how obsessed they've been with the events of their childhood, and Catelyn specifically. Meanwhile, poor Sansa has to suffer from both ends just because of the resemblance she bears to her mother. What was it Tyrion said about dancing on the strings of those who came before? Yeah, that seems to fit pretty well now. Sansa sees just how far gone her aunt is, while Lysa launches into stories of old and starts kicking down the pebbles that will become an avalanche in a few minutes. Lysa confirms what we were essentially told back when Catelyn was listening to a dying hostess rambling about her becoming pregnant with Peter's child, but then being tricked into an abortion by her father, which makes this mental state make a lot more sense, and really drags the empathy back out of us. But she also reveals exactly why Baelish believes he took Catelyn's maidenhead. He isn't just acting out for once, it is genuine belief. Again and again, Lysa talks about people trying to take things from her. This whole discussion is the belief Sansa wants to take Peter away, and it all relates back to Hoster's great crime. Clearly, Lysa was obsessed with Baelish beforehand and would have held on to those feelings for a long time. But do we think she becomes the broken person she is here without that crime from her father, or she doesn't even get pregnant in the first place? I say no, she doesn't. A baby was stolen from her, we have to really focus in on that. She didn't choose an abortion, and miscarriages are a tough enough experience to deal with even when you view them as an act of nature. But to know that someone intentionally took this from you, this baby, this product of your one true love, this opportunity for the whole life that he wanted. Well, it's really not so different from everything Tywin stole from Tyrion, is it? So we absolutely find out why Lysa was willing to even not help her family or actively move against Hoster specifically. But it also makes sense why she grips so hard to Sweet Robin, or to Peter, or why she thinks everyone is coming to take away the things she loves. Because it's already happened to her, and it was the very th worst thing in the world. Hmm. See, I told you about the empathy. Empathy, maybe, but that doesn't excuse what's happening to Sansa. Like she says, she wasn't born when all that happened. None of it was her. She is not her mother, as much as she might look like her. But as she's trying to say what she thinks Lysa wants to hear, it only adds to the fire, and those Lysa pebbles start rolling a bit faster. She's on a tirade now. She's thinking about Catelyn, and she just can't keep it together anymore. So emotional abuse moves to physical, and our hearts go into our mouths as Lysa moves towards the moon door. We are smart enough to be worried for Sansa's safety. This is the end of the book, after all. We know George is going to want to end with a splash, and we've already seen what can happen to main characters. In fact, with Marillion playing and the lyrics being spliced in amongst the prose here is very comparable to Catelyn's own death and the playing of the Reigns of Castamere.
Lysa gave her another shove, and Sansa shrieked. Her left foot broke through a crust of snow and knocked it loose. There was nothing in front of her but empty air, and a way castle 600 feet below clinging to the side of a mountain. Don't, Sansa screamed, you're scaring me. So Lysa's pretty much lost it, whatever way you're looking at the situation. I don't think she actually planned to throw Sansa out, because in her mind, it might make Peter angry and she doesn't want that. I think the original goal is just to utterly terrify this poor teenage girl, but emotions are so high and Lysa's fear is so real, I don't think she knows what she's going to do. As she pushes Sansa farther and farther out, everything becomes more frantic, the tension rises, and Sansa forgets any semblance of courtesy and starts pulling on Lysa's hair, because this is a matter of survival now, and for a moment, it looks like they are both going to spill out into the sky, and wouldn't that have been really, really bad for Littlefinger? But instead, the man himself arrives at the climax. And he's cool under pressure. He speaks urgently, but not urgently enough to push Lysa over the edge, because he absolutely understands who and what Lysa is. He knows about her obsession and fragile mind. He knows she's liable to go off, and as we'll discover in a few minutes, he does not care about her in the slightest. Instead, he's used this obsession and undying love and fragile mind as nothing more than a tool to achieve his own ends. He has lied and led... He has lied and led Lysa around by the nose for decades. Decades. Her entire adult life. He has planned it, manipulated it, promised that all her love was returned. And again, for decades this has been going on. Lysa's entire life has been as a means to an end for Peter Baelish. Aside from Jane Poole, this is the cruelest thing he ever does. But it's all a step too far for Lysa. Sansa is just a bit too much like Catelyn. And worst of all, deep down, she knows it was Peter who initiated the kiss. She knows he really wants Sansa as he really wanted Catelyn before her, and there's nothing Lysa can do except lie to herself about it. Even though she's given him the world, the whole world, and he still wants someone else. Hence why those pebbles become boulders, and the avalanche begins in truth, as she starts listing off exactly what she has done, and why she should be the one he wants. It wasn't me. I never knew. I only drank what father gave me. That's past and done, Lysa. Lord Hoster's dead, and his old maester as well. Littlefinger moved closer. We don't want Elaine to know more than she should, do we? Or Marillion. I just love the end of that quote because he knows full well how much Lysa could spill and that she is his biggest weakness in many ways. If she says too much, it'll mean he has to take certain steps to deal with her, and Marillion and Sansa too. But I just love him suddenly spotting the leak in the boat. Catelyn kissed you in the godswood, but she never meant it. She never wanted you. Why did you love her best? It was me. It was always me. I know, love. He took another step. And I am here. All you need to do is take my hand. Come on. He held out to her. There's no cause for those tears. Tears, 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 she sobbed hysterically. No need for tears, but that's not what you said in King's Landing. You told me to put the tears in John's wine, and I did, for Robert and for us. And I wrote Catelyn and told her that the Lannisters have killed my lord husband, just as you said. That was so clever. You were always so clever. Avalanche, complete. Lysa confirms what we've been saying about Catelyn all chapter, but then she slips in what is maybe the revelation of the entire series. All of this the war that has ravaged the country, that took the Starks out of their loving home and split them apart, that has had an impossible-to-conceive number of effects from gigantic battles where thousands of men died, to Ned's beheading, to the burning of Winterfell, to the burning and torture of the Riverlands, and all the abuses suffered by the small folk, to the death of four different kings, to everything that has happened specifically to these Stark children, to nearly everything we have witnessed in total over these three huge books, to say nothing of the effects still coming in the next two and beyond, all of it was originated on the whims of Peter Baelish and his manipulation of Lysa Aaron. Let's just let that sink in. This continent-spanning conflict with a billion effects and aftermath, this absolute horror that has consumed the entire saga, came about because of two normal humans, normal people, 
and the emotions and issues they've carried with them. Peter Baelish ripped apart all of Westeros because at the end of the day, he was pissed he didn't get the girl. That's it. That is amazing writing from George that the human heart in conflict thing can produce such epic spanning results. Just those couple of acts from Lysa, also acting on emotion and desire, has resulted in all this. It blows the mind and is another one of those things that I'm just never going to do justice to. No one can. And it's such a drag back to Game of Thrones. This is the original question. This is the original inciting incident. All that investigation we had from Ned and Game of Thrones that so dominated that book, all 15 chapters, we've just got the answer to. Two books later, it was Lysa. It was Littlefinger. That's how John Aaron died. That's why the letter was written. That's why everything started. I think you can tell in my voice, this is this is huge. I, <laughs> I can't get it across to you. What it does do, a long time after reading this chapter probably, because it takes a good long while for all that to sink in, is confirm what I've always said about Peter Baelish. He is the antagonist of this story. I think it's true in terms of his cruelty with Jane Poole or what he did to Lysa, but this absolutely confirms it in terms of his overall effect on the world. He is the villain. It's a huge moment that we hear all this, but never forget, Sansa does too. She's not really in a position to digest what she's heard, and she doesn't have half the pieces of the puzzle we do, probably not even a quarter. But that won't always be today, I'm betting. She's going to think back on this conversation and start clicking things into place. But anyway, <laughs> we've still got more chapters to go. Peter talks Lysa down just long enough to get Sansa safe. And we arrive at a few rather famous lines. I've only loved one woman, I promise you. Lysa Aaron smiled tremulously. Only one. Oh, Peter, do you swear only one? Only cat. He gave her a short, sharp shove. Lysa stumbled backward, her feet slipping on the wet marble, and then she was gone. She never screamed. For the longest time, there was no sound but the wind. Typical little finger. The act isn't enough. It's not enough to just murder someone. He has to get the last word in. He has to have a line. It's cruel just for the sake of it. One last knife in Lysa's soul. Last quote here. Run, let my guards in then. Quick now, there's no time to lose. This thing has killed my lady wife. What I'm thinking on this ending is that Littlefinger really brought all this on himself. I've no doubt he eventually did want to get rid of Lysa, use his position as her husband to assume the regency, and then keep both Robert and Sansa close at hand. I'm not sure he ever meant to do it this quickly. Basically, he slipped up with Sansa because he couldn't help himself. As we've seen before, sometimes his own obsession with the old slights and his hero journey take over his grand plans, and kissing Sansa was one such time. He gets away with it, but he's damn lucky because this could have gone so much worse in a myriad of ways. As it turns out, it goes kind of perfect. He can instantly be rid of Lysa, he has a scapegoat who everyone hates that was right there, and he has an eyewitness he's pretty sure he can persuade to stick on his side. It even helps him bring Sansa closer now they're in on a specific crime they completed together. It's not about complications, but it's pretty good. So we finally see Peter Baelish get his own hands dirty. Given all that he put Lysa through in her life, she probably deserved that at the least. Whatever way you look at it, this is a huge moment. The Tully line is even more extinguished than it already has been in this book. One of the Seven Kingdoms has just changed hands and come under the control of someone who already has one kingdom officially and the key to another in his pocket. Robert has just lost his second parent, Sansa has just witnessed another murder, this time a relation, and we'll see a lot of the strength she gained in Snow Winterfell going back to being dormant now that she's even more tied to Peter Baelish. It's an incredible narrative point, and considering all the change we've seen throughout and at the end of this book, it's a fitting end. But I think that reveal actually overshadows the events at the end. We've already spoken about how this is supposed to be the grand ending to a major slice of the saga. This is a tentpole, a key break, so to tie it all together so neatly by revealing why it actually all started, that's a masterclass in structuring. Recall, 
These first three books were supposed to total up the War of the Five Kings, even if we will continue to see the aftermath. We move into a new section in Feast and Dance, and that's without the five-year gap that was planned. So this really is a cherry on top by ending with the beginning. As for the five-year gap, this is a pretty incredible cliffhanger to leave us on in that respect. We would have likely assumed Baelish gets away with it and begins his rule in the Vale and instruction of Sansa. But can you imagine if that had happened and we open the next book with Sansa having been under his influence for five years? No thank you. <laughs> no, I do not want to read that. As for Sansa and everything going on at the Vale, it's a semi-goodbye similar to Arya. We pick up the Eyrie again fairly soon in what is one of the more dominant storylines outside the Jamie, Brienne, Cersei triple threat during Feast. There's only three more chapters of Sansa and then we get nothing in Dance of Dragons. So it's a big change to what we're used to. The Sansa we'll see is more confident, she's coming into her own, but she's also aligned with Peter Baelish. Yes, we love her being in control and learning these secrets, but the presence of Littlefinger just sullies it all. It's definitely going to be an interesting read. As for Storm Sansa, well the most important thing is she got away from King's Landing and Joffrey. But don't forget, she also got married, had to escape, and finally had to give up her identity in a manner similar to Aya. And that's even with that huge POV gap. We've seen her gain strength and find more of herself, even in a book where her family are brutally murdered. And I love the glimpse we get of that in this chapter. Here's hoping for more to come. And that's the end of Storm of... So oh no! No, 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 that's wait. New challenger has appeared. We have one more. Yes, everybody, it's time for our very first epilogue. Time for merit. No, we're not done just yet. Song of Ice and Fire first. Now we have to deal with the epilogue. <laughs> oh, yes. And even more surprising than that fact alone, the character we get is a fray of all people. This jumps out in two ways. One, it's the first member of the nobility we ever get in a prologue epilogue chapter. Crescent comes close as he's in that setting, but noble he is not. Although it's quite funny that said member of the nobility is also a member of the phrase, so in fact it's incredibly common. It also jumps out that we're in the mind of a certified bad guy. We've had that before in this very book with Chet, but Chet was still very much a mystery to us when we started. We didn't know the depth of his crimes. As for a fray, oh we know, we know very much. It's true, so much has happened since the Red Wedding, 30 chapters worth by this point, so it's easy to be distracted from the awfulness and emotional heartbreak that was that whole saga. We've got a lot of contenders for the moment of Storm of Swords, Tywin's death, Jon's Lord Commander, but the Red Wedding is, at worst, a close second. For me, it's still top dog. It was huge, so George has let us have all these distractions and just dropped all these bombs about the war and how it started. So it's fitting he returns us to his discussion about an event that in some ways ended it. But for the first time reader, that's still pretty confusing as to why. Is this just an extra knife in the back, George? Are you really going to make us relive all that horror through the eyes of a victor? And really, to what end? What is there for us to learn in the Riverland still? For the first time reader, I assume they'd be thinking this is something about the ongoing resistance of Riverrun. They might even guess it's about the Brotherhood seeing as their storyline was also dropped about halfway through. But in general, it's all very interesting and definitely has our interest early, especially if we think the epilogues will follow the prologues and have the POV die at the end. Frey's meeting their death? Okay, George, you got us. But then again, who is this guy? Merit is mentioned by name a grand total of three times prior to this epilogue, and one is an off-handed remark from Big Walder in Bran 1 of Clash of Kings. The other two are during the Red Wedding chapter, Catelyn 7, both of them before the action really starts, and both of them in reference to Merit drinking a lot. So if you remembered that prior to finding this epilogue, then congratulations. But even so, it doesn't give much of a hint of why this particular fray should be of interest. But that just raises the interest, doesn't it? What was his particular part in the Red Wedding? Why specifically should we hate him? Well, let's find out. The road up to Old Stones went twice around the hill before reaching the summit. 
Considering the chapter we just had and all these questions a first-time reader would have about this epilogue, we could be forgiven for skipping over that first line. But it is actually really fitting to have Catelyn return here to start enacting her vengeance. This is the sight of a first man-king who fell and whose line was ended, remember. When we were here before with Rob and Catelyn, we spoke to all the similarities between Christopher and Rob and why this spot means so much. So it certainly makes sense as a site for justice and revenge and avenging what has become specifically of the Riverlands. That's without going into how much this place must mean to Catelyn personally. It's a great tie-in again by George. Now we already know the realm was in bad shape, but firstly, Merritt notes it's been snowing here too. Okay, the area was one thing, that's high up on a mountain, but now there's snow down in the Riverlands as well? Yes, winter is truly coming. Then again, it makes a bit more sense if we look at the map and see the Eyrie and Old Stones almost dead even horizontally. In fact, they were a lot closer than you might originally think. But it's more than snow. Merritt is actually thinking about the crops that have been lost and the likelihood of famine combined with early winter. Such are the leavings of war. This is that Tywin Lannister legacy we were talking about. This is the same kind of aftermath we're going to see all through Feast. And it's what the phrase have sown too. They're going to be better off than 98% of the people, but winning the Red Wedding doesn't automatically guarantee you success, as this chapter is going to prove. And I should point out here, actually, George doesn't even use the word fray for a while yet, and we don't get the twins until the third paragraph. So unless you do happen to be one of the masterminds that remembered Merritt from his three previous mentions, you might really be wondering who this guy is until about this point. But it all becomes clear when that twins mention comes in. The penny drops when we realise he's a fray, and we're then treated to some extended backstory to separate Merritt from the fray hordes so that we can get to know him as a person. George's ability to conjure up these backstories that, in the long run, don't matter at all, and he only has a few paragraphs to get across or a few pages, really is spectacular, and I like to think one of his true delights in writing. Although, we should note, there'll be key additions to Merritt's story supplied in Feast by Jamie, who knew him as a youth. But for now, we find out Merritt has a hatred of outlaws, and is slowly teased out that's because he had his life stolen from him, which is fitting considering some of the similar stuff we've been speaking about recently. Specifically, Merritt is on course to be a great knight, or at least that's how he tells it, before an injury that leaves him completely incapable in that regard. So he fits perfectly into our continual athlete analogies. He was once on the right track, ready to make a name for himself. He'd based his life on a certain set of skills. Then, by bad luck more than anything else, they are taken away from him and his whole life changes. Everything he wanted or had planned has changed. That's a pretty big hole to fill, and Merritt ended up trying to plug it with alcohol. It's an all too relevant story from our own real world athletes who suddenly lose their ability in a day thanks to a freak accident or have to face early retirement. Something is needed for the pain and loss. Let's get his first quote here. Besides, my wife is a shrew. My father despises me. My children are worthless. What do I have to say sober for? He was sober now, though. Well, he'd had two horns of ale when he broke his fast, and a small cup of red when he set out. Yeah, that definitely sounds like the words of an alcoholic, but we also learn Merritt is a very unhappy man indeed, which fits him much more smoothly into our previous prologue characters. For the most part, those three had a problem and had a plan of how to deal with it. Turns out, Merritt is the same. He hates his life and the circumstances that led him to such, but now he's on a quest that might just make everything right. So our interest is raised again, because we're already guessing on how it might go wrong and we want to see how. We learn Merritt is there to deliver a ransom for a captured fray, Peter, who first-timers might have an easier time remembering since Grey Wind made him fall off a horse. More so, we learn he volunteered for such a task because he needs to make some kind of splash to give his head above water with so many other frays swimming around. And with this, we really get our best-ever cross-sectional look under the skin of the frays, how it works with so many of them, and the fact most are evil and as ambitious as the others. We learnt some of this from Big and Little Walder, but we have a much better and more relevant source now, 
and the news on Blackwater sleeping with everyone in sight really breathes a lot of life into those phrase will consume themselves theories that we all enjoy so much. There's a lot of fodder for this that you can dig out. We often speak about how the Lannisters are the opposites of the Starks, but I think that is just, if not more, applicable to the phrase. Merritt reminds us exactly the type of person he is, even if we forgive his injuries, when he moulds the choice of just abandoning Peter and going drinking with the ransom money. But he also continues setting up the confusing and the countless factions within the twins and the Frey family. We are again reminded that Sir Stevron was supposed to inherit the twins, and by all accounts, he would have been the best choice, and seems to be amongst the best of the Freys in general. But he is gone, leaving Ryman Frey and his sons, whom we've also met, to inherit. But Merrick considers his own brother Lothar the most threatening of all. Lord Walder had ordered the slaughter of the Starks at Rosalind's wedding, but it had been lame Lothar had plotted it out with Rhys Bolton, all the way down to which songs would be played. We spoke back in Catelyn's later chapters about Lothar being all sweet and courtesy in negotiation, and how we knew that all to be false on reread, thanks to this very chapter. Yes, Waldefrey was signing off on the whole thing, but it was this Lothar that presented the friendly face, only to shake hands with a knife. He was the one to add all the extra cruelties just for cruelty's sake. This job could have been completed even quicker and less messier, but Lothar is evidently the type he likes to toy with his victims. Certainly, he has a vision of poetic justice and a touch of a sociopathy around him. Another quote just to keep that fire going about the twins consuming themselves in the end. It was like to be every son for himself when the old man died, and every daughter as well. Yeah, just uh, keep that in the back of your mind. As more specifics of Merrick's backstory come through, we find he is currently basically drifting. He's too low down on the highborn scale to have anything to rely on, but too high up to have ever learned a trade or skill. Now he's in the tricky area of having zero prospects, but needing them sooner rather than later. Hence his volunteering for this risky mission. When it comes down to it, we have a son trying to earn some praise from his father. And what follows is a long tapestry of how circumstance and fate have worked against Merrick. He lost his skills thanks to a chance mace blow. He married into House Darry months before they lost much of their prestige in the rebellion. His marriage produced only daughters for years. Oh no, how terrible for you. And in case we're about to feel sorry for him, we get another reminder of Merritt being awful via how he views his children. And to be fair, though I argue a lot of this chapter is important only for this chapter, two of Merritt's daughters are some of the phrase we will see again and might have some importance down the line in Amaray and Fatwalder. Is that Amaray? I'm going with Amaray. We return to the Red Wedding yet again as Merritt finally reveals his part of the plot. It isn't a big one. He wasn't allowed to scheme. He didn't get to kill anyone important or play a large role in slaughtering the soldiers. He was used to get the great John drunk, as Catelyn's earlier thoughts attest. And that's it. And as he recounts, he wasn't even good at that. Hands up if you enjoy the description of how hard the great John fought. So no, he wasn't a primary player, but he played a part. Again, hold on to that for later. From there, we get down to business as Merritt finally arrives. A curtain wall of old stones had once encircled the brow of the hill like the crown on a king's head. I really like that descriptive line as an analogy for the crowns that seem to be crumbling everywhere after that initial influx of kings. Amerit reminds us again he is doing this for advancement and nothing else, which is why Frey does everything. They're a flock of grander crows and weasels really, they really is after the corpses. I'm tempted to sing it for you but I think I would just read instead lest you begin to mock me. High in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts. Yeah, one day I'll do a whole patron episode which was just me singing that line but not today. Anyway, I misremembered this. Initially, I thought we got this snippet when I was with the ghost of High Heart, so I figured that this was the initial signal that the Brotherhood were here. But having gone and checked, I actually hears no lyrics back then. But Rob remembered there was a song about Jenny when he and Catelyn were here last, so it's actually a much deeper hint to the presence of Lady Stoneheart. Well done to you if you caught that already. It's interesting Merritt wants respect from Tristopher's tomb when he originally arrives. I suppose he is Riverland's nobility, but it might be more to do with just naturally arguing with outlaws. 
But anyway, next quote. We're all cousins in Seven Streams. Okay, now we know. That's the hint we're looking for. A singer from Seven Streams and a much harsher, more direct voice beside him. Yes, it is the return of the Brotherhood. So we know Merritt is a goner and we can get on with guessing which brother is which and when Beric will show up. Because of course he will. He's the leader. He's the moral centre. We need him for the big goodbye, obviously. There's some woman in a robe there. Might be Lady Smallwood. Could even be the ghost of High Heart. Certainly, first-time readers have no reason to guess at the true identity. Meanwhile, Paul Merritt doesn't realise that Tom is already hinting this is all in relation to the Red Wedding, with his comments on Walter Frey liking loud wedding music. What he does realise is, he's in trouble. He's outnumbered, they're already taking his gold, and this whole venture seems rather foolish. Perhaps he would have been better off just drinking the Hundred Dragons, which is quite a lot, drinking it all away. Well, given chapter's end, we know he would have been better off in the short term. For now, he relies on his class and hopes that Beric will still be above the rest of these outlaws that Merritt still despises. Unfortunately, no luck there. It's my turn to be Lord Beric. Does that mean I have to be Foros? The singer laughed. My lord, sad to say, Lord Beric was needed elsewhere. The times are troubled and there are many battles to fight. So the truth about Beric's final death is kept from us still until the end of Feast. The Brotherhood know the usefulness of keeping up the spectre of Beric Dondarrion, that he's everywhere at once and cannot be killed. It confuses the nobility, and as we mentioned earlier in the book, the small folk really need to still rally behind that idol. I don't think as many would be signing up to help Lady Stoneheart. No, she's not as uh, good on a poster. We also get that quick hint on why there are so many reports of Beric in so many places. Again, as we saw earlier on, with different people pretending to be Beric to add to the confusion and foggy reports. In fairness to Merritt, he stays strong in demanding to see Peter, but goes along amiably in the end. We've said that Old Stones is important as the setting here, but also note that this chapter, and what we find at the close, ends in the castle's godwood. What better place to address the crimes of broken guest right and the need for justice? And what better way to show the lady we are about to meet again is truly different from before. You'll recall, the first time we met her was in a godswood as well. Before that larger reveal, we get the first. Peter Pimple is already dead, hanged by the Brotherhood rap banners. And as Merritt looks up in shock, his mind not even daring to think what this obviously means for his future, we get two large quotes on how this Brotherhood has changed. First, Merritt turned away from Peter. He could taste the bar on the back of his throat. You, you had no right. We had a rope, said Yellowcloak. That's right enough. And then secondly, I only came to ransom Peter. You said if you had the gold by sunset he wouldn't be harmed. Well, said the singer, you've got us there, my lord. That was a lie of sorts, as it happens. We'll have more talk on this in a minute when we come to the bigger reveal on our future knowledge that this is a true change in leadership, but immediately we know this is not the Brotherhood that we first came across of Aya. Those Aya chapters made a lot of effort to show the lengths the Brotherhood would go to for fair trials and due process, or at least make some effort towards them. This is quite different. The first quote is certainly problematic as you can easily equate it to simply saying, because I can, it's allowed. And that opens up a whole can of worms about who has the bigger sword and what is right in the world. Or, to look at it in a different way, is Len merely the mouthpiece for Catelyn here and is saying that Merritt and the phrase have given them all the right in the world by breaking the ancient laws with the Red Wedding. The second quote is more straightforward. They've abandoned honour. We're into straight up lies and tricks. Not that there wasn't an element of that before, but this is more straightforward and upfront. They aren't even pretending. Again, it's a large deviation in policy, and it's fascinating to see that some brothers are obviously in on it 100%, while others are not. I'd love to know more about the mindset of those who have stayed. Were they just tired of this cycle of living in the wilderness and scraping by, only for it to seem that they're not really getting anywhere? Did they finally feel that they can let their true natures out now that Beric isn't in charge? In some ways, I feel like some of the Brotherhood are a type of broken man who want to strike out in aggression. I also don't doubt many of them do buy into Catelyn's reasons for revenge. The Red Redding was abhorrent, 
and I doubt many of them are fans of the phrase beforehand. The larger question is how much of their activities are still focused on helping the small folk? Some, at least, or they would be exposed, but we don't know how much. Exactly what would these hundred dragons be worth and what would they go to? Again, we'll return to those themes in a moment. First, let's check in with poor Merritt, as he realises he's being fitted for a noose. In classic highborn spirit, Merritt argues he is protected by his family name, and then his family's money, and then by his family's swords. A lot of uh, Varys riddle vibes right there. He also agrees to answer a question, one that turns out to be about Sandor again and the skinny girl who is with him. So we know Catelyn has learnt this information and is seeking to get one of her daughters, or someone she hopes to be her daughter. We love that hope and that Catelyn knows to look for Arya, but we also know this trail will run cold. They won't find Sandor again, and Arya's just left the Riverlands for good. There's also a bit of heartache that Catelyn will have learnt Arya was maybe within touching distance just before her death. That must have been hard to hear. The subject stays on the Red Wedding, as Merritt realises this is a retaliation for what happened to Rob. Interestingly, Merritt opts to try and clear his family's name first. It was war, it was Venice, they look silly. They even lost men themselves, and that is really a laughable argument if I ever heard one. We get some more details of Rob's corpse and the fate of Greywind, although the eternally hopeful among us will see that there is a razor-thin room for the wolf to have escaped, before Merritt moves on to trying to clear himself specifically. He had no part in it, he was just following orders, that old chestnut. His brothers and cousins and whatnot, they were the mastermind. And note that Lothar's sociopathy extends to the horrific killing of the soldiers as well as their collapsible tents. And that's all Merritt was, a soldier. We've already been in Merritt's mind. We know he would have filled one of those larger roles if only they had asked. And that whether he was given orders or not, he partook. He was part of this. He killed Rob Stark. And unfortunately, Merritt's final plea that they have no witnesses does him no favours either. Worse luck, I suppose. Here comes the quote we've been waiting for. Her cloak and collar hid the gash his brother's blade had made, but her face was even worse than he remembered. The flesh had gone pudding soft in the water and turned the colour of curdled milk. Beneath her ravaged scalp, her face was shredded skin and black blood where she had raked herself with her nails. But her eyes were the most terrible thing. Her eyes saw him and they hated. She don't speak, said the big man in the yellow cloak. You bloody bastards cut her throat too deep for that. But she remembers. He turned to the dead woman and said, what do you say, my lady? Was he part of it? Lady Catelyn's eyes never left him. She nodded. Holy, okay, where do we start? It's Catelyn. Lady Catelyn, they say it right there. She's here. She's not dead. <sighs> to call this a surprise or a reveal doesn't do it justice in the slightest. This is easily the biggest surprise in the entire series, the biggest blindsider by far. The only contender in my eyes is Eddard's death, but that was more about the reader not believing that George would dare kill off the main character three quarters into the first book. The threat of his death was already well established, and if you go back and look, as we did, there's more than enough foreshadowing. But this? There's no build-up to this. Yes, okay, we do have Mimira dragging Catelyn's body out of the river, and many a first-time reader must have thought that'd be significant in some way. But most likely, they believed it was just about honouring Catelyn's corpse and confirming to Aya that her mother was actually dead. Surely, no one saw this coming. And consider its placement. Just in today's episode, we've had the huge shock of Tyrion killing Tywin, John's ascension to Lord Commander was slightly more on the table, but it's no less important. And then we get the huge reveal on Peter Baelish and his starting the war. That alone would be worthy of a book's ending. And now we get this thing, like eight pages later, blowing all of it out of the water. Mind-blowing. And a huge part of what makes this book incomparable to anything inside the series or out. Catelyn, one of our main characters, has come back to life and is claiming vengeance for the largest heartbreak event of the series. She's here, walking, not talking, but alive, Ish. And that's the thing, isn't it? She's not alive because we know she died, just as Mary does. We've actually got double confirmation. 
So now we have to start connecting dots and filling in gaps. Obviously, it was Catelyn who Arya slashed Nymeria, dragged out of the river, and the men who found her were the Brotherhood. But we still don't know what happened after that. It'd be natural to assume Forrest just did whatever he does for Beric, and it worked. Unfinished business and all that, she comes back to life. Who knows? We haven't actually heard anything to the contrary, and won't until the end of the feast. Then again, Beric and Forrest are missing. And so are several others. Where are the rest of them? Where's Gendry? As it is, we won't get those answers here. We'll have to wait quite a while to find out the moral alignment of the Brotherhood of Outbanners, which was a fascinating case study earlier on in this book, has been skewed by this change in leadership. And a lot of that remains unanswered after Feast and makes up some of my most want-to-know questions about Winds of Winter. When did Gendry split? What happened to the other bands, etc, etc? For all we know in the moment, this is the Brotherhood back in its usual roaming bands, and it just so happens this one is now being led by Catelyn. This is going to be a real interesting discussion to have later on about how Beric led this near-holy crusade against evil and oppression in the Riverlands, all in the name of the Free Folk, and now all that he built has been turned around and used for a personal vendetta. It's so difficult for us as readers, because we used to have Catelyn's POV, we feel that same anger against the phrase, her vendetta is ours. So balancing that against the corruption, if you want to call it that, of the Brotherhood, it's difficult. We love dead phrase, but has the Brotherhood lost sight of saving the small folk? We need more details, and I look forward to having that discussion far in the future, when we do actually get some of those details in Brienne's feast chapters. But let's, let's forget about the Brotherhood for now. Catelyn's back, yes. We as readers also have this huge level of excitement that one of our favourite characters, or favourite if you me, has returned, immediately mixed with the grim reality of that resurrection. This isn't a Disney flick where some lights zoom around her and hey presto she's back at 100%. Like Beric, she brings back the scars with her. The constant reminders of the great crime of the Red Wedding, Catelyn losing her mind at Rob's death and her own grisly murder. Nothing easy with George, nothing one-sided. So now we have to ask, should we be happy about all this? Yay, she's alive, but look at her, is, is this what she wants? Is this a quality of life? And remember how Beric described the experience too. This is what has become of our poor Catelyn. Still, a lot of that joy is the restoration of possibilities once taken from us. When Catelyn died, she did so believing all her children were gone and that basically every terrible thing that could happen, had. She had every reason to believe Edmure was dead as well, everyone would be lost, etc, etc. This news we get at the end here, however grisly the details, opens up a thousand paths again. We didn't know in Storm, and still don't really know after Dance, but it is possible Catelyn can find out about Sansa and Aya being alive. She might even live long enough to find out about Rickon, or even Bran. It's a long shot, but we can't say no for definite. Even better, she might meet them again. All we ever wanted for Catelyn is the possibility of her seeing her children again, and we might now get that. Then we can really start going off the reservation and start thinking about her returning north or even having some larger role to play in the endgame. Even before we'd stretched that far, we know she started the vengeance of the Riverlands. This poor, war-torn realm that has suffered so much now has someone repaying the debt, even if it is a focused repaying on her own personal pain. We can guess she's learned about Edmure surviving, and there are bunches of theories surrounding the possible retaking of Riverrun, a place so important to Catelyn's soul. And how can we not be on board with that? I still love to dream about the now-on-the-run Blackfish joining up with his beloved niece and bringing his expertise to the Brotherhood. All of it is still to come and still to be dreamed of. We have these ideas of Aya maybe saving Catelyn via the giving of mercy, and we already know about some members of the Brotherhood becoming more, more disillusioned as we go, but it's so hard to focus on that with the level of surprise we have here. Catelyn is back. She's avenging the Red Wedding and House Stark, and it makes for what is clearly the best ending of any Song of Ice and Fire book. And, okay, yeah, let's not forget, goodbye Merit. Unfortunately, it's very hard to concentrate on you after Catelyn's reveal, but let's give credit where it's due. He has so much backstory, he has us doing the classic George Mark of getting us to understand why someone is the way they are, yet hating them at the same time. 
we get a fully fleshed character and it makes his end worth that much more. Okay, for real this time. That, my fellow green folk, is a storm of swords. That is it. It's very difficult to find words to sum up the experience, like I said at the beginning. I haven't thought of any during this three hour recording currently. Not just in today's chunk, but overall as an ending and a book, difficult to sum up. I think the main point that I've already raised a few times is, this is the peak. And this is a song of ice and fire we're talking about, so it's not like there are any valleys, but this really is the Everest on top of Everest, especially in terms of the Red Wedding and this absolutely unbelievable ending. It shouldn't be possible to fit so many major moments into one act, but, well, here we are with our minds all over the floor. And what more can I say? I think I'd need some time to collect and look at the book overall, but for now, I'll say I love this book on multiple levels. It has some of the highest emotion, the biggest turns in plot, and all of it was supposed to be set up for a five-year gap that we didn't get, which I still find fascinating. And I considered ending in an extra section here on, on where everyone is supposedly ending up and what we were supposed to think the future storylines were at the publication of Storm of Swords, or if you got this far as a first-time reader back then. But uh, I think I might save that. Maybe, maybe do a bonus episode on it. Anyway, I'll, I'll post it in some form. We'll save that for later because this one is going a little long for now. So I think I'm going to let you guys go. Before you do, let's talk about next time. What will happen next time? For me personally, sleep. Maybe. Probably not. Maybe even food. Eh, I wouldn't hold my breath. What's for definite though? Feast for Crows. Yes, we know that. And we reach a major deviation in style, content and the narrative as we simultaneously open land and storylines yet unseen while changing plots evolve by revisiting previous places with new POVs. The world extends to the Iron Islands and the Sands of Dawn, but we also get the focus on a very much changed King's Landing and an ever-suffering Riverlands. Many will say it's the weaker book of the series, and alright, each to their own, but I disagree. And I'll say, while Feast is probably the most different in terms of tone and style, it is superb, and I think it might be one of the best for improving with each subsequent reread, which is exactly what we plan to do, so that's good news. And of course, the big change is that we will be focusing on specific areas while intentionally leaving some out. So, like I've said, we must say goodbye to Catelyn as a POV, we'll say see you later to John, Danny, and Tyrion, which is pretty huge, as well as Bran and Davos, and we will welcome back Sansa, Aya, Sam, and Jamie before finally saying hello to Aeron, Victarion, Asher, oh, I like that one, Ariane, Ario, Ares, and especially to the two biggies, Brienne and Cersei. Yeah, I know you want those two. That is going to be quite the ride. What can you expect in between? There will also be a live stream next week, History of Restaurants, hope they don't mind me saying, with uh, rounding up this whole book and Valerie Redis, so we're looking forward to that. I am going to be getting on with the Storm's End rereading of uh, the Castles book, and I'm sure we'll be getting some Sporkle Spectacular out as well. So lots to look forward to on the aisle. We're not leaving you hanging too long. And before long, we're going to be back with Feast anyway. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've never reached a 3 hours, 5 minutes, 30 second recording yet. That's what it is currently. Don't worry, I've still got all my ums and ahs and mispronounces to cut out. So cut out, there you go, there's one. So it'll be a little bit shorter than that. And let me thank you all from the bottom of my heart for being along for the ride. Hope you've enjoyed especially tuning in today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. A million times. Stay safe out there. Stay smart. We'll see you next time.